this offense exactly the way Greg Roman wants it. Taylor steps up, and this is the other dimension of Tyrod Taylor inside the 10 and in for a touchdown. I think I've had just about enough birthdays. Oh, yeah? Yeah, happy birthday, by the way. Yeah, I think that's good. I think 35 is about right. Yeah. It's weird about getting older, sort of like... I don't know. What do you think the cutoff is? I was thinking about this. Like, what is the cutoff for you? You always want to get older. And then <laughs> right, the alternative something sucks. happens and you no longer want to get older and you kind of like, oh, if I could just... Oh, here. I see what you're saying. Like, when you're like... 14 you're like i can't wait to be 18 there's always a reason to be a little older you know it's like well i want to be a teenager maybe is the first thing and then it's like well i want to be able to drive at 16 or i want to be able to drive past nine at 18 or i want to be able to drink and go to bars at 21 or i want to be able to rent a car and get cheap insurance at 25 now okay this didn't work out for me but I would think the sweet spot is like 24, 25 years old. Like if you're out of college and have a good job and you like it, then there's nothing better than that. Cause like you're making a living, you're not answering to anybody and you're making some money. So that would be the sweet spot for me. Like I'm a happy dude, but I don't make any money. So, I mean, I'm still waiting for that, but I don't want to be older because of it. But I think once you like maybe have like a house or whatever and you've, 25 is probably a sweet spot. But maybe pre-kids. You don't have those responsibilities just yet. Yeah. The may- pressures. Maybe you're still single. Like, that would probably be the sweet spot. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know when it happened exactly because, like, that decade where it probably occurred can somewhat be a blur for me at times when I try to look back at it and think about yeah, I what think happened. But People always say, like, oh, the high school or whatever, that's the best time of your life. It's, it always feels like the best time of your life is, like, a period that you can't appreciate it. Like, I remember, like, in high school being, like, worried about a book report or something, you know, some stupid paper that was due. And now, like, if that was your only worry, that'd be, right. that'd be cake. So. Well, it's funny, like, the time you're describing is exactly where Anthony is in his life right now. Right. But it's like, yeah. hasn't Anthony already had, like, three or four best times of his life? <laughs> like, yeah. going away to the USHL playing hockey at Yale now he gets another best time of his life I imagine when I mean hopefully the best is yet to come it's what everyone will want right, right. but uh I imagine like the Yale championship year is about as good as it as it gets certainly it was the best spring he's ever gonna have yeah all right well it's season five episode 28 it is September 1st 2015 it won't go up that early though It'll still be a couple days uh there's not much fluid about the situation today Unless for some reason ESPN tells David Shoemaker he can't come on. <laughs> uh, he just had to make sure because he's actually been on a few wrestling podcasts that they ended up not being too fond of. So they told really? him to make sure he gets permission ahead of time. Uh, as in like salty language? Or- I, I don't know. He, he said, you know, Those sorry are- I didn't get back to you in time to be on last week. You know, uh, I'll be on this week. But I just have to email ESPN because – they want to make sure when I do a podcast, it's one them. They, they want them right. on, right. I hope yeah. that's on-the-record information. Um, I, I can't imagine it wouldn't be. We didn't say anything out of out of line anyway. I don't think so. 
Uh, but David Shoemaker should be on today for some reason. ESPN says no. Well, we got big issues because we also have like I don't know. ESPN's a weird place, and we don't have to get too much into this, but it really depends who you talk to. Yes. Yeah. You know? They do pay attention, though. They do. They do. Um. So this is what we got today. David Shoemaker is going to talk about SummerSlam and the summer of wrestling and what's coming up in the future. And uh, it's always great to have David on from Grantland. Uh, and also we're going to have David DeSola, the author of the Allison Chains book. That oh, we talked sweet. about. So last week we did two football guests. We'll take a break from that this week. And then next week we'll do a full football preview show. Great. So and we're working on a bunch of different things for that. That is very fluid situation gotcha. for next week. But that's what we got for t- for now. And we'll get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. On the count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. All right. Let's see. Lots of Bills news yesterday. Yeah, it was a So let's start interesting with the quarterback. Day. Yeah. They went the risk reward route. Good. Which I would assume Good. makes you happy, right? Yes. I don't want to see I mean I I think I mean people preface this all the time by saying it's not like he's gonna be the next Russell Wilson. Um, and maybe that's true, but of all the guys on the roster, he's the only one with that chance. Matt Castle, you know exactly what he is. EJ Manuel, you think you have a really good idea what he is. And this guy is kind of an unknown that people from Baltimore seem to like. Rex Ryan said he liked with it from there. And uh, I'm excited. Why Why not? I'm not going to be shocked if EJ Manuel goes somewhere else and became a reliable NFL starting quarterback. But it's never going to happen here. Yeah, man. I, you know what I mean? It's just because of the circumstances and the way things played out, this spot just isn't going to be right for EJ. So they couldn't go there. Yeah, I didn't think so either. It was weird the way they handled him last preseason game, giving him the start. He looked, I mean, he had two passes, but they were both complete. And well, then he came back touch. in. And then he came back in, which was and bizarre. And again, too. did well. Right. So I don't know if he's done as an NFL player, but he was done as a Bill. Probably, yeah. He was done as a bill as soon as Kyle Orton took the field last year. That's probably true. Yeah. That was it. I mean, that said, if I was running the bills right now, I think I caught Matt Castle because Greg Roman's offense has always been about read option quarterbacks, and EJ and Tyrod Taylor are more similar, not just in that they're black quarterbacks, but that they both can run the read option, and Matt Castle can't do that at all. So as soon as Matt Castle comes into a game, or if he has to come into a game, the offense is going to totally change. They they can't run the same playbook. So I wouldn't be against getting rid of Castle. I don't know what you. I mean, Castle costs the most of any quarterback on the team right now too. But I don't I don't know what you do with that extra money at this point. Uh, well, and sometimes it just ends up being dead money anyway. Right. right. I, I don't know the exact. I mean, he's oh, got to he be just a, caught him. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that can be complicated. I don't know if he qualifies as a vested veteran. NFL or, cap is so crazy. Or what he is, who knows? But um, yeah, I think they probably made the right decision too. Early, I thought. They should just go with Castle, um, but because they're built to win now. Yeah, just earlier in the preseason. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just didn't know enough about Taylor, and it just felt 
safer and it felt like it made more sense. And I think as the preseason went on and you've seen some of the things he can do and you know what kind of strain that can put on a defense and just maybe gives the offense a little bit more of a dynamic, a little bit more of a chance to be something different. So I it, think it, I think it was it, the right move. I think it shows the confidence that Rex has that the ownership might give him a chance because this is the only Castle is the safe bet. If if Doug Marone was still there, they would go with Castle because Doug Marone coached like he was worried about losing his job, and which is what really ruined EJ Manuel's chances here. Right, right, so. and uh, uh, Tyrod is the only quarterback of that group, with the exception of maybe EJ that could still be your quarterback of the future. I mean, Castle cannot be that, right? I mean, he's... No, I mean, the most he could do is give you two, probably two seasons. Right, and even... I'm, I just mean as far as ceiling goes. Like, he's not a guy that... If if you get the 15th-ranked offense out of Matt Castle, the Bills are going to be a really good team. This I year. think there's at and least... I think a, that'd be a stretch. At least a 50% chance, at least, that Matt Castle would have had a better season than Tyrod Taylor this year. Maybe. But there's just nowhere to go from there. I think that's the case if Tyrod Taylor ends up throwing the ball all over the yard or fumbling a lot while running and stuff like that. I can't imagine Castle is is the more uh, – I mean, he doesn't throw the ball down the field at all. And it, Not that that's necessarily Taylor's strength, but he has arm strength. He's just – he's kind of like EJ. He's just not that accurate. It's sort of like – it's sort of similar to the Kaepernick versus Alex Smith, Smith thing, yeah. but with lesser players. Right. In both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, if the Bills had Alex Smith right now, I, I think that's who they'd be going into the season with. Right. Not Tyrod Taylor. And if they had Kaepernick, they'd probably be going oh, yeah. into the season yeah. with him. I would think so. Even if they had him. At, if they had the 49ers situation, they'd be going with Kaepernick. But yep. it's similar. It's It's the same in the sense that Castle is a much more safe and sure thing for this year. So I say there'd be at least a fifty percent chance he's the best quarterback on the team for this year, but the like you said, his ceiling compared to compared to Taylor's is is different, but their floors are different. Taylor has a much lower floor. I would think so, than yeah. Matt Castle. Yeah, that does. I would agree with. So that's why I say it's a risk reward move, right? Sure. Um, and uh, it, I think it. It's what they had to do. They showed a little balls, yep. a little guts. and uh, I don't know that they had to cut Fred Jackson. I don't know that they had to. Um, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I, I guess it depends on how much you put into like a locker room guy. Uh, and that's something. I mean, this, supposedly the players looked like the, it, was, it was like a depressing day yesterday. The, the, he was really well-respected, uh, well-respected in Buffalo. I was almost going to make this my one last thing, but it wasn't going to be too glowing, and I don't want to beat him up as my one last thing. But I went and looked at his stats. He's the third highest rusher, or has the third highest amount of rushing yards for the Bills of all time. That said, he's had one 1,000-yard season, and he's almost never been the best running back on the team. Right. He was never asked to be, though, either. No. He was never in that role. He is the obviously. perfect teammate. Um, he went to Seattle, or it sounds like he's going to go to Seattle. I think he'll be. that's a great fit. Uh, Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm not going to lose a ton of sleep because they had to cut the oldest running back in the league. It just means that they really like what they saw out of Carlos Williams and they want Booby Dixon to play special teams. And uh, I would have probably just cut Bryce, Bryce Brown. Brown. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder if he still gets cut. I, yeah, maybe. But 
I like Fred. He's a, he's a super guy, great for the community. Uh, unfortunately, he was here during the worst stretch yeah. of the Bills that I can remember. So it's not like I have any of these wonderful it's, memories of the Fred Jackson-led Buffalo Bills. It's not going to change your season, obviously. No, I don't think it makes the Bills better or worse. No, but uh, he was a great Buffalonian. Yes. And we owe him a thank you for that. Absolutely. Yep. So, uh, let's see. This nonsense with Brady is still dragging out. Yep. The league apparently offered him three games if he admitted to guilt. Okay. Which is which essentially they're asking him to take one game less and admit to perjury. <laughs> yeah, I guess. That was basically right. the deal yeah. they laid off. So despite the judge asking both sides to try to come to a, an agreement, obviously the NFL is not approaching that with any kind of good faith. Right, and they said they would decide the judge would make his decision, I think, what, on Thursday? I'm going to guess it goes... Probably five minutes after we post this, the decision will, yeah, be, will be rendered. Yeah, that sounds right. Which is part of the reason why I'm going to hold off on book club now. So if this does happen, oh, you can break I can in. slide it in there. There you go. Uh, so listen to the book club update, or we'll talk about this more next week. But silliness continues. Um, what did you think about finding out that Kirk Cousins is the starter in Washington, not only for week one, but for the entire season? My first thought is what I don't think I want him this year, but uh, I would want RG three on the Bills next year. Why not? You absolutely want to be the team to give RG three a second chance. I think, and he has He's not old. <laughs> Listen, Washington made a crazy. In hindsight, I loved the move at the time. It showed balls. They moved up, got the guy they wanted. They gave up a lot for him. Now, not only have they ruined him there, like. He's just never going to trust this organization again. No. They've ruined any trade value he has. I mean, he has more trade value than like an EJ Manuel, obviously, but they've done nothing but hurt this guy's stock. And I mean, that's their franchise quarterback, or was supposed to be. I think Matthew Barry really is, who's a big Red, Redskins fan, yeah. has articulated pretty well. It's an organizational failure yep. from top to bottom. Yep. And of course, RG3 has some blame in it. There's some there. He seems a little he's he's ru- he's a little immature. He shouldn't have been out there when he got the knee injury in the playoff game. All right, you know he needed to take some restraint as the player there. Uh, so that's where you can, you can find some if you dig for it. But ultimately, yeah. it's just a complete and utter breakdown in an organization who this, can't, can't even figure out what their name should be. This right? Is, yeah. I mean, and it just goes from top to bottom. Offensive rookie of the year. In his, I mean, obviously in his rookie year. But. A unanimous number two overall pick in the sense that yep. every single NFL team would have picked him number two in that draft. And there's some that maybe would have even picked him one. Sure. And we know number one was Andrew Luck, who is the prototype NFL quarterback, right? Right. And he's maybe and there the was, I'm sure, some, play, some teams that may have picked RG3 over him. Maybe, yeah. But uh, I wouldn't mind being the team that gave him a second chance, especially and for the Bills, they're in a great spot in the sense that they can play a style similar to what you would use RG three in, and if that ceiling for Taylor doesn't quite get as high as you hoped, and the opportunity is there to bring him in, you could have a really nice QB battle next year. Now RG three might not want to go to a team where he needs to be in a battle, yeah, but we'll see what's out there for him. Who knows? I know because, like you said, it's he's not leaving there with stock up like it was after the rookie of the year. Yeah, season. they're not getting three first round picks or no. anything stupid like that. But uh, 
Yeah, I'd want my team, regardless of how Tyrod Taylor looks this year, I mean, unless he looks like Russell Wilson, I'd want my team to be the first team on the phone yeah. with Washington. Uh, all NFL teams should be down to 75 by now. The Saints are actually the only team still trying to be coy about their cuts. Oh, yeah. They didn't release them until they had to. I don't know why they play games like that. Uh, the biggest name cut has got to be Trent Richardson, right? Yeah. Who's probably at the end of the road as an NFL player, I'd think. Just from an athlete standpoint, uh, I used to – I don't know if I did it this year or not. Anyway, I used to blog the first round of the NFL draft. And I remember this guy coming out. He looked like a monster. Like yeah. He had a physique like Adrian Peterson, and it looks like he just – has no vision. It's weird too that it seems like people sort of relish in his failures. It seems like there's just always. I, this I wonder like, if it's because of the trade. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. Was it that way right from the start? I don't know. It's weird. It just seems like there's just this happiness about his failures. It almost has become a joke, or maybe it's just the maybe it's just another Raiders failure. I, Although, I mean, they didn't do anything wrong. They no, they just brought him in as right, a fire. And then they cut him. Right? They cut him. I mean, they didn't do. Get deep in it. A um, couple guys aren't going to be cut anytime soon are Julio Jones and Antonio Brown. Yeah, those two guys are going to or got new money. Um, Jones got an extension, a five year extension, and uh, Brown got more guaranteed money now. To avoid so he's going to make yeah. more this year. Um, I guess he thought about holding out for this, but went in knowing he's with a really good, fair organization. They take care of him, and they did. So that's what a reputation can get you in this league. Now, they avoided a holdout and a mess because the player knew the team would, would be there for him. Des Bryant signed his extension, what, last week? A few weeks ago, yeah. And that, weren't they kind of thinking that Des and Julio were both waiting for the other one to sign first to kind of right. get the same deal? And I think they ended up with real similar deals. So, Yeah, I mean, the Brown deal is only $2 million more for this year, but... Yeah, he's got a case. He's going to make $8 million now this year, though. Yeah. You know, so that's a nice amount. Now, here's what I want to ask you about. So, let's take the three guys uh-huh. that just got paid, right? Go, we'll add Bryant into the discussion, too. We've had a couple drafts. People are going to have more. Mm-hmm. Who, how would you rank those three guys? And I know to some degree it's splitting hairs. Yeah. But if we have a listener who has the sixth pick and the first five were the top running backs, top five, fifth, Lynch was the fifth pick. That that clip's a lot shorter on my computer. <laughs> That's okay. We don't need it. Lynch was the fifth pick. The other four were, you know, Charles, Lacey, Peterson. And right, right. You don't want a quarterback, so you're going wide receiver here. Who would you pick? I think if I break it down like this, I think if I'm in a, I'm in a PPR league, it's Antonio Brown. I think if I'm... If it's a league that is heavy on yardage, I think I go Julio Jones. And if it's touchdowns, I think I go Des Bryant. Who was the one I missed there? No, that was just, just that a was three. A, yeah, just a three. I, I think that if I had to rank them each that way, I think Brown had the most receptions. I mean, Jones would, might have the most yard. And there Bryant isn't another guy you consider, is there? Would you consider Beckham, who went really high in the one draft that we had? No. Would you, consider... you know what? They, the Giants and Eli do this every year where they look all out of sorts in the preseason and then they go win a Super Bowl or something. Because like, they've looked that way again this year. People, You talk about relishing and Trent Richardson. People are like really watching that because now there's a microscope on Beckham Jr. and Eli. and He had another sick catch that ended up being out of bounds. But oh, yeah. Another one where he like stuck his hand up and just kind of poached it out of the air somehow. Yeah, no, it's one of those three guys. 
for sure for me. I guess they're going to talk about gloves a little bit. Yeah, I've you heard, hear that? I've heard that. Like once he takes his gloves off, people are like, "Oh, now he won't be able to make any catches." <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that's it for the NFL for now. Yeah. Hard knocks. Apparently, I saw it described the episode tonight summed up in one sentence: J.J. Watt and Vince Wilfork go for barbecue. <laughs> Vince Wilford. I love Vince Wilford in this show. Yeah, he's funny. He's just always wandering around playing basketball. Do you think that there is a realistic scenario as we move on that Pat Kane could be traded? I heard that the, the as many as five teams have called. And what I don't – boy, if those names ever get leaked, those teams are going to get crucified. I think Sean Leahy was the one on Puck Daddy who wrote about it. And he said, clearly, where we see felonies, GMC, opportunity, yeah. or something like that. I mean, what is the thought there? If he's found not guilty, they're going to they're gonna keep move him. on and keep They're going to move on. And if he's found guilty, he might go to jail. I guess there's been some rumblings that maybe the organization's fed up in the sense that they feel like he disrespected the team and his teammates by putting himself in a bad position again. Which, okay, maybe, but if in the end it's he can go back to them and say, I didn't do anything, and the law agreed. What are they really mad about? Right. I think that that's a nice thing to talk about, but in the end, there's two solutions. He plays for the Blackhawks, or he's in serious trouble and doesn't play anywhere. Yeah. I don't really Yeah, it's a a weird – it's one of those weird – it's like texting someone that you really shouldn't with no real payoff. And having your wife find out, you know what I mean? Like, if that, if those, that's a lot of risk with very little chance of reward for those GMs to put their neck out. If those names come out, they're going to get crucified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see it happening. I don't. No, I don't see well, trade. No, he's going to as a viable. I don't. I don't think so either. All right. Uh, last thing: the U.S. Open is underway. A few things I want to talk about with this. Obviously, the main story is Serena. You know, will Serena get the Grand Slam? Won, I heard she won in like 27 minutes. Yeah, she won 6-0, I believe. Nuts. No, I mean, if you've won the first three majors, you'd expect to really dummy your opponent. Uh, but she went Ronda Rousey on her opponent. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, she tapped the girl out in 20 seconds or whatever. I maybe have brought this up before, but is she maybe – is she arguably the best athlete Ever, male or female, compared to her Yeah, you could make an argument for sure. She's she's probably the greatest female athlete of all time. I, yeah, I would think so. I mean, she's just dominant and has been for a long time, too. So we're going to see if she can get the Serena Slam. And I think the thing with her has always been if she's motivated and she wants to, yeah, she yeah. usually does it. So not, we'll see if anyone – you know she wants to get a slam. Yeah. So we'll see if anyone can stop her. Uh, another thing that's sort of interesting about the tournament, did you see that – uh, Sabres owner yeah. Tara Pagula's daughter won a match. Yeah, good for her. She won. She's in the second round. That's her first. I think she just got her whatever card. I don't know what they call it. I think that's what they call it in golf. But she just got on to the like the pro tour or whatever, and she won her first match. So good for her. Yeah, she might be a little old for women's tennis. Yeah, maybe. And she's like twenty-one, right? And like <laughs> something. You got to get in like sixteen. But I don't know. But uh, she had some injuries. She worked through them, and uh, that is why they moved to Florida, I believe. Right? Is that where they lived, I think? I know they grew up in Pittsburgh, and I think they moved to Florida so she could play tennis. Good for her. Cool. Cool for her. Yep. All right. We're going to take a break, and uh, ESPN willing, we're going to be right back with David Shoemaker.
All right, our next guest is from Texas. He went to Baylor, and now he lives in Brooklyn, where he writes about wrestling for Grantland and is the co-host of the Cheap Heat podcast. He's making his fifth appearance on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the masked man, David Shoemaker. I figured you out. Baylor. <laughs> that is the first time that anyone's used that music to introduce me. Um, I am a I am a very uneasy Baylor Bears fan at, t- at times incredibly passionate, um, but it's uh, it, that's that's certainly the first time anybody's done that for me. So if you want to talk about Baylor athletics, this is kind of a really weird moment to do it, but I'm game. <laughs> right. So it's so the first thing I do when I know a guest is coming is find out where they went to college because, as a rule of thumb, I guess we bring our guests into their fight song. Yeah. So. But every other time you've been on, I couldn't figure it out. And I think I thought about asking, but I just never did or didn't think of it. And then it must have been just last night I was listening to the new GP podcast. And you guys were talking about Griffin. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, he went to my alma mater. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa back that up. What did he just say? I'm yeah. Like, ah, got it. Bailey. You know, it's very, very weird to be... Well, I mean, there's not that many Baylor fans in the world compared to, you know, like you, you see right down though. the road. But but it's very strange to be sort of a front runner all of a sudden. That's never been my experience. It used to be that I would, you know, I could talk to, like I remember specifically talking to Jim Ross the first time I met him. <laughs> and it was it was kind of a good move. It was, I felt like it was a good end to say I was a Baylor grad because then he could like talk shit about Baylor right. for a minute, you know, about how, <laughs> about how terrible they were. And then he would like me better. Um and then the next time I talked to him, Baylor was had just like destroyed Oklahoma, and it was not as comfortable. <laughs> it was very so like most people would be really excited about this. I am very excited about it. I actually you know I like I like Baylor basketball a ton, um, and the, and it's fun to have you know Baylor be on Baylor football be on a you know on national television and stuff. But it's just such a it's such a shift for me. Um, that like I mean it's just so weird. Like when I went to when I when I went to when I showed up my freshman year. I think the only athlete in the entire school who was on anybody's radar was Brian Skinner, the basketball player, and he ended up, you know, having like a, you know, a respectable but but insignificant NBA career. And I mean, it's it, how far it's come and since that time is pretty shocking. Yeah, and and especially since like it almost seems like the turning point was a tragedy. You know, where at yeah. that moment you thought, okay, we're just never going to hear about Baylor again, but instead. It's like no, we're gonna build it up from here. Like it was a rock bottom kind of moment, and from there, you know, it's like now there's that beautiful stadium, the house that RG three built or whatever. And um, <laughs> well, it's the, house, it's the house that what's his name McLean built. I mean, it's, a, it's like one well, guy gave billions of millions right. and millions of dollars. That's always how it is. Yeah, yeah. But um, and you know, then there's you know Trey Wingos of the world, and and are a little bit happier. But um, yeah. I remember the very first time that Baylor almost beat Oklahoma because mm-hmm. I have a friend that uh, this like the kid down the street from me who's it's like seven or eight years older than me. He was a really good local football player. Now in Buffalo, high school football is the shits. I mean, it's terrible. You know, a, a Rob Gronkowski is a very, very rare thing out of Buffalo. Um, most of the athletes here are hockey players. And uh, 
my friend could have went to you know SU or uh, Penn State, but he went and walked out in Oklahoma and he backed up Jason Belzer there for his four years. And oh, I, wow. yeah, so I, like I've always been a huge Oklahoma fan. I mean, because of that, huge is maybe a relative term. I've always supported Oklahoma football, but um, I remember the first time that Baylor almost beat Oklahoma, and Oklahoma ended up coming back and winning. I think it was either the first Landry Jones year or maybe the last year of Bradford or the year that Bradford got hurt against Texas, one of those years. And now it's like all of a sudden it's not that they can almost beat us. It's that they're probably going to beat us. And if they can beat TCU, they might even win the national championship this year, which is just a really strange landscape, as you said. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, because, I mean, it's not like they were just like the, the team that wasn't that good in the Big 12. They were the team that Oklahoma had literally beaten every single time for 25 years or whatever. So, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, when the big, for, the, for the first decade of the Big 12, we were just the homecoming school. That was it. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, but, but yeah, th- I mean, this is obviously like a particularly weird time um, with all the stuff that's going on down in Waco. And, you know, it, that's part of the culture shock, too, is like suddenly, I mean, everybody that's a fan of a big-time university has like some stuff they're really embarrassed about, they're really angry about. And, and with, with Baylor, it's all happened so fast that these things feel like a tidal wave. So, right. Um, anyway. That's yeah. not why you didn't call me to talk about Baylor football. <laughs> and, you know, be glad you went to a big-time college because for me, someone who went to a D3 SUNY school in New York, I am celebrating the fact that one of the Fredonia students is on Big Brother, you know, and oh, is okay. still in the running to win Big Brother. Those are the things that we have to choose cheer for at G3. You know, none, <laughs> none, of, none of our guys are going to represent the, the university and the pros. They're going to Big Brother, and that's where we uh, – we have our... That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, go Steve, I think his name is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's great. Wrestling. Here's what I think, and this is based on no evidence, but it always feels like to me that there's these periods where wrestling gets on these dark runs where everything just clumps together. It just feels like it, feels like it happened a few times before. And again, it's not that I charted the bad moments in wrestling history and, and notice the clumps. It just feels that way. And it feels right now like we're in the midst of one of those runs where maybe it started with Dusty Rhodes passing away. And, you know, I think then maybe the next thing was the Hogan uh, disaster. And then it was Roddy Piper. And now it's like Jimmy Snuka. And I'm just thinking like, if you're a wrestler who gained notoriety in the eighties, you might just want to stay in the house and not even leave or something. I don't know, but what was yeah. your reaction when you heard about this strange thing with Snuka being a cold case? Well, it's weird. Like I tried to write a piece about it a while ago, and it ended up um, ended up not going anywhere. I mean, it, it won't because the the um, I'm, I'm going to blank on the name, but the newspaper that kind of rebroke the story um, last year, I guess, or earlier yeah, this year. Was, yeah, uh, I think it was last year. Yeah, was. I mean, I was like, you know, I think I, you know, tweeted some about the piece, and, and there, there were, I mean, there wasn't really anything to add to what they wrote. Um, unsurprisingly, not many people interested in talking about this who, like, you know, were were stars of that era. Um, but you know, so it, it wasn't like completely unexpected. But it, every time these things hit, they do sort of feel just like like you're getting hit over the head with something as a wrestling fan. Um, you know what? the Hogan stuff you know when he was they leaked the video leaked of him saying some just like deplorably racist stuff um, what was the, the hardest thing about that for me and I think I talked about this on my podcast um, was 
I couldn't figure out why I was so upset for a while, and I finally kind of like what I what I came to realize was that I just had this like deep feeling of complicity, and you know, it's not you know I, it, it's kind of it's almost hard to put into words, but it, you know, at some point. You know, when all the all the you know, I wrote my I started writing about wrestlers who had died. I mean, that was the beginning of my wrestling writing career. People who had died too young, and uh, a lot of that was a lot of that went into my book. And that was the same feeling that I realized I was dealing with was this feeling that like you know, at some point you 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 deal with so many of these deaths that you realize it's like my money that is that is paying for. I mean, is keeping this industry afloat, and this industry is killing these people that I love, and. uh the, you know the racism thing was really similar, and again, just in the sense that that you know I wrote a whole chapter in my book about racism and wrestling, yep. and mm-hmm. and and it's easy to dismiss a lot of that stuff in a jokey way, and 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 to be totally honest, some of it only deserves to be dealt with in a jokey way. I mean, there's, this is not all you know died in the wool racism that's going on and, you know, when when they when they have a stereotypical character pop up on the screen, but um, you know. You do feel a sort of complicity after a while when it's just like such an when when something like the Hogan thing happens, um, and you know the Snooker thing. There's a lot of that too. I mean, it's all a long way of saying like I was not spending my hard-earned money in 1983 on the WWE on you know WWF tickets. I was I, I don't even know if I was watching wrestling yet in 1983. But the but um, regardless of I mean obviously the, you know. There's we we don't know if he's guilty or whatever, but uh, I mean the the concept the notion of this sort of thing happen, happening isn't isn't imp- unthinkable, and it, you know it was part and parcel with the business. Now you know I'm not going to point a finger at a certain thing, but um, Roddy Piper, um, one of the all-time greats, when he was on uh, I guess was it Real Sports on HBO a decade ago, right? Saying he wouldn't um, make it to 65 or whatever. Yeah, he um, he talked about you know just the nonstop twenty years of abuse he put his body through, and Piper was one of the most notorious like like party guys. Like the like everybody had a how crazy is Roddy Piper story, you know, about him. What I mean, like riding a horse into the hotel lobby, or I mean, I just made that up, but it's you know those, right. those sorts of things. Um, and you know, judging by Piper's own words, those sorts of things were happening under massive amounts of the influence of massive amounts of drugs of various kinds. That was just the standard for the industry at that point. And for you know, it was the '80s for a lot of just the entertainment world. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to detach uh, what Snuka is has been charged with doing. I mean, murdering his girlfriend from that lifestyle. So there is sort of that complicity aspect there too. Well, what sucks about it is like for so many people who grew up as fans are still fans, we're fans. These are their guys, you know, like, and I feel so bad. Like, it's one thing if your guy was dusty, right, and he just passed away and he, he's so revered in the business and you're sad. And, but at least, you know, you, there's these great tributes and, and there's this, this great feeling about it. But if your guy was Hogan and it was so many people's guy growing up, what, yes. what do you do now? You know, if your guy was Snooker, if you're Mick Foley, for example, who – you know, has this legendary story of hitchhiking from uh, wherever he went to college, Cortland, I think, hitchhiking all the way from Cortland to MSG for to see him jump off the cage. How many times has he been in the ring talking about that moment? And and now, and it's like the WWE's reaction to this is like, well, we're just going to wipe these guys out and distance ourselves from them. But how do you do that as a fan, someone who grew up, you know, for 30 years 
Nick Foley's signature moment was that snooker thing, and now he needs to pretend that didn't happen. Or for all the Hogan fans, you know, all the kids who were Hogan marks who are still friends or fans now, like we just have to pretend like Hogan didn't exist, and that's just really hard to do. It is, it is. I mean, and this is this sort of gets to the crux of why wrestling is. I mean, everything that I've written is on some level about this disconnect between um, the superheroes on the screen and the real people who play them. Um, and how blurry that line is in pro wrestling, and that's why it's so hard, right? I mean, right. if your all-time favorite movie is is The Karate Kid, if Ralph Macchio committed murder, I'm not embarrassed that I'm a huge Danielson mark because Danielson yeah, exactly. didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if your favorite movie is is Braveheart, I don't think that you had to stop saying that when after. I mean, except for like maybe the week after Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson's right. last catastrophe, you know, good, whatever. Good but like, example, yeah. Um, yeah, that can still be your favorite because there's because you can say oh, I'm a fan of the time period. I'm a fan of the <laughs> I'm a fan of just like European history. I mean, whatever. Wrestling is just so everything is just so weirdly tied together um, that it's hard to to justify that. Now, I mean, listen, I, I think that like like it's a little bit awkward to suggest that like you're that Hogan is still your number one guy, but I don't think that there's anything. I mean, there's anything embarrassing about him growing up with him having been your favorite guy. I mean, right. Listen. He would not be on my list of top five guys or top ten guys. So, in some sense, you know, for wrestling nerds, loving Hogan that much is a little bit embarrassing. But like, um, you know, I mean, it's it's clearly a. I don't think there's any way you can be a wrestling fan in your 30s and not be on some level aware that like a lot of the guys we grew up watching probably dropped the N word a lot backstage. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just right. the sort of. I mean, that that would not be shocking to anyone. I think so. Um, so yeah, I mean it's tough. It's tough to it's tough to have to when when this sort of like whitewashing period goes on. But I, you know, on some level you can sort of like already see the redemption, the path to redemption occurring, and and um, you know it's notable that WWE you know they cut ties with them, but they didn't delete them from the website. It wasn't like a Chris Benoit situation. And, right. Um, Thank God, you know they didn't take like they didn't have, they didn't take down WrestleMania three or something or cut the the ending. Right, I mean, no, there were there were a lot of the great that. memes, yeah. you know, with Andre the Giant like that was just flying through the yeah, air and yeah. nobody body slamming him. <laughs> I mean, there's some of that stuff was so great, but yeah, I mean, listen, it, it well, I mean, it, it. I said on my podcast this week, it's really the hardest thing for me in dealing with the Hogan thing, aside from just the, the complicity and the sadness, is that Hogan is just like such a he's like there's so little reality left in him yeah. that it's hard to really take his apology seriously and it's but it's also kind of hard to it's hard to get too mad you know i mean it's like dealing with a simple person or something or dealing with like an imagine like a fictional character like i mean it's just sort of hard to get it's hard it's not it's not like it's hard to get mad it's just hard to really like address this as a real thing in a strange way yeah i mean like you said hogan's one of the classic guys who's just always working you know, just always. So, yeah, he's tricky. You know, we, uh, you know how Foley and Jim Ross and some other guys have had some real success with these shows where they go out and they talk and tell stories and take questions. And Jake Roberts is trying to get one going, I guess, now. And one of the first ones was in Buffalo. Um, so I went. Uh, my friend and I, we emailed the, I emailed the promoter and said, you know, I'd come down and talk about it on the show, whatever. So we went down there, and um, I think it was only the second or the third one he did. And it was actually the day after um, Piper died, actually. And it was the next day, Saturday. And, um, oh, man. Yeah, and I remember thinking of just how sad it was that here's this guy who was really a huge star in the business, 
He had also just had surgery to get hair plugs put in. So, I mean, he he's walking out there with, like, half of his head shaved sort of awkwardly, and he's, like, open scars from where they put the hair plugs in or whatever. And he can barely walk or stand. And, and then he, when he gets to telling the stories, it's like, okay, right now Jake is on. So, are any... I just I could never tell when I felt like he was telling me a real story or some inflated version of the story and just the whole thing felt sad but then again the whole thing sort of felt like there was a little hope in it though because you know despite how sad it might be it still symbolized to me kind of a, a resurrection of the guy to some degree if that makes any yeah. sense yeah no absolutely and that's the kind of the story that everybody's I mean it's weird Again, this stuff I've written about a lot, but the, but the, uh, you know, we follow these characters on screen for so long and engage with them so deeply that then in their real out of the ring, you know, their life after wrestling, we sort of we were like desperate to attach the same sort of um, storylines, and and it's it's frankly not that hard to do because um, because. The tra- because tragedy is like so much, like so, it's like so, such part of the course, you know, for these guys um, in their real lives. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of weird watching Jake go through all this stuff in his in his personal life because even the highs seem to sort of just be setting him up for another fall. And and I mean, it's it's it's, it's such a precarious situation to try to. To, to, to kind of put that much on somebody in the real world. I don't know. It's, it's funny, but, but you're right about specifically about when wrestlers are on, they're on. I mean, I, the best storytellers I've met in the world are professional wrestlers. Yeah, and it's, they're amazing at it. Um, to hear them going, when they get going, it's, there's nothing like it. And you know, it's like, it's the day after Piper dies. So obviously he's going to talk about Piper, you know, and the first story he tells, he says, you know, I want to tell you about the first day I met Roddy Piper. And I don't know if you heard this story of, he may have told it a million times. I have no idea. But he said, you know, the first time I met him, Greg Valentine said, you know, you're going to love this new guy because he loves snakes. So Jake went up to him and with the snake, and I guess Piper turned around. It turns out Piper's actually super scared of snakes and flipped out and went to his briefcase and took out a pistol and said, <laughs> you know, if you are the snake, get any closer. So and I, I had not heard that. I was just sitting there thinking like, all right, that's a hilarious story, but then I'm like, but is it true? Was did Rowdy Piper really have a briefcase in the back room of some auditorium in the Mid Atlantic Territory with a pistol? Just in case, it's kind of it, it almost doesn't matter. Is what you eventually it learn. It doesn't yep. matter if it's true or not. I mean, I, the first time I ever met Ric Flair was way before I was writing about wrestling. A decade before I ever wrote anything about wrestling, and. Uh, and he told me the story. We were, just, we were talking about what you know his early days. Somehow, I just got in this amazing conversation, and, and um, he told me the story that when he first came to North Carolina, when he when he you know, was first starting out, basically on the uh, on the big stage, um, the old guys in the back told him that that Andre the Giant had multiple rows of teeth like a shark, and he totally believed it, and spent all of his time backstage like trying to. Whenever Andre would sit down, he would like sidle over and try to get a look in to see his teeth. And, uh, I mean, clearly that wasn't true, but the, but like, that is like the perfect, I mean, that, that, that perfectly explains how, like, even for them, the line between fiction, um, and reality is just totally non-existent. And I mean, it's a prank, but it's also, you know, it, it, it speaks a lot to, to what the environment is like. The sportscaster here with David Shoemaker from Grantland, the cheap heat podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at AKA the mass man. 
Uh, did you enjoy the Richard Deitch podcast? Yeah, yeah, it was a really weird, a really weird honor. Um, you know, I always like. I mean, in, in doing any sort of podcast, doing your podcast, it's not specifically geared towards wrestling. Doing radio shows is always sort of, I get that weird feeling that, like, no matter how long I do it, I'm always going to feel like I'm sitting at the kids' table at Grantland, and uh, and it's nice to it's nice to get some sort of recognition. But, you know, I've, I've, I've never, I don't even know if I've talked to Richard Deitch before that podcast, but, you know, we've had some, like, Twitter interaction and stuff, and he's, he's a wrestling fan, yeah. and it's, I kind of feel like on some level I'm the... I'm like the, the 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 venue that people use to like come out as wrestling fans on some <laughs> on some level. Right. Um, it's like I'm your AA sponsor or something that like like I can I can explain that it's okay to be a wrestling fan. And more and more, I mean, it's not there's no stigma attached to it, which is great. But uh, but it's you know it's funny how many how many wrestling fans come out of the woodwork. Yeah, it's like this podcast and Deitch are really intertwined. And, uh-huh. um, you know, like, I think, like, people who don't know much about this, like, someone might be able to say to them, you know, it's that one that, Deitch, like, like we're somehow tied together because, well, for one, like, one of Deitch's big thing was the picture thing on Twitter. Like, did you know about that? No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not aware. Like, uh, so it, it actually was, I... In 2013, I was in the hospital from, like, January 28th until March 14th or something. And I had um, some bowel bowel surgery. And the whole time I was in there, uh, my brother, who was the D1 hockey player at Yale at the time, uh, they were in this, like, really bad slump. And I kept talking to him, and he was really down. And he's like, for the first time, I really don't want to be here. And, uh, you know, we're having this bad time. And I kept saying, you know, you're going to be fine. And you guys are still going to make the Frozen Four in Pittsburgh. And when you do... I'll be there. I promise, you know, I'll be there. And then somehow we both made it there and uh, they won the national championship. But at the end of the night, when I had to go, my brother and I and my other brother, we just kind of came together like we were intertwined and had this moment and someone took a picture of it. And a couple of weeks later, I was at home and I saw the picture for the first time and I tweeted that, you know, I just realized I have a picture of the greatest moment of my life and that's crazy. And Richard saw the tweet and sort of retweeted it. And asked if anyone else did, and next thing you know, there was like thousands of them, you know. And we, it, and like the whole story was like on Good Morning America and Channel Four, oh, that's and, cool, you know. And so we kind of got linked there. We were already like partners, and I mean, not partners. That's not right. I don't know. We were already sort of. He had some kind of legendary appearances on the show that somehow branched out beyond this. I don't know how. And then there was that, and. Um, you know, uh, he named like he. I think he does the media award. I know he does the media awards there. And last year, our podcast was like he did top podcasts or whatever. And we were the only independent one. And when I would, when people would congratulate me, it was either congratulations on that or wow, you Deitch is really your boy. And I don't. He even named you there. Like it was like oh, you didn't like you know as if Richard Deitch would risk his reputation by naming us as a good podcast if we weren't. But um. I don't know. We're, we're way off the rails. I don't even know what the point was. <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, but I, I mean, doing Deitch is fun and, and, and yeah. talking anytime I get the chance to to kind of proselytize for pro wrestling to reach a bigger audience. I feel like that's sort of what I'm here to do. So it's uh, it's nice to get the opportunity. So now you took a big risk and I took this risk and it backfired on me, but it worked for you. You actually didn't go to SummerSlam, right? You went to NXT. And Correct. Raw. Now, I did this once. I said, you know what? 
Sure, WrestleMania is just down the street from me, but what's going to happen at that that I would care about? I don't need to go to that. Nothing exciting is going to happen. <laughs> and then, of course, it was you know the Hogan and Rock match, like one of the most legendary matches of all time. But I think you were able to escape it without... I mean, I don't think in 20 years we're going to be speaking with any reverence about the night that they did that silly thing with Undertaker and Lesnar and uh, John Stewart ruined a championship match. I think you'll, you're all right. I mean, weirdly, I think we are going to be talking about the John Stewart thing, and, I don't, and not necessarily a bad way, but it's just it's going to be a trivia. You know, it's going to be the answer to a trivia question for a long time. And you will get uh, it wrong, we've learned. And what? And you will get that trivia question wrong, we have learned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, the, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, listen, I, it was a long weekend of wrestling, and I've, I, for a long time I've said that, if I, that I think actually the best way to do WrestleMania is to do everything all weekend, you know, all the week leading up, do all the Friday night, Saturday night stuff, go to all the one-man shows and the indie shows and whatever, and then just rest on Sunday, take Sunday off, watch WrestleMania from a bar or from your hotel room, and then go to Monday Night Raw. Like, that's what I thought. I've never done it, but that's what I've always been said, that like, I think that that's the ideal way to do it. And uh, and so this year, I finally got a chance to do that at, at SummerSlam. It was like, it was, it was, uh, it, it was really nice. And I, listen, I live like, Ten minutes from the from the Barclay Center, so if something incredible happened and I felt it, you know, like it would it would behoove me to go and like get some quotes from fans after the event. I could have been there before they before people started leaving, you know. Right. So I mean, I at least had that in my back pocket. Well, I want to talk to you about the the weekend real quick in this, and I want I know we do this a lot. And okay, I told you about how I went away and came back, and when I was away, I knew that the biggest star was John Cena, and. Hearing things about what he was and who he was kept me away for a while. Like, no, I don't really want to go back now if the champion is some guy who turned the belt into a belt with a spinner. You know, like that, yeah. just like anecdotally, like that's like, I don't need to go back now if that's really the top guy. But then when the network came in and I came back and I watched WrestleMania 30 and I started to learn more and more about Cena was, I built a huge respect for him because as a fan yeah. for so long, I know how hard it is to be in the business and how hard it is to be on the business from the top, especially, and how the guys who work from the top usually have smaller runs because it is so taxing and exhausting and hard. And now yeah. we've talked so long in this interview, we talked about the stars and, and maybe how some of them have let us down, right? And now here is the star who, of course, I don't know everything about him and of course could let us down. I have no idea. But what we do know is there's a guy who's granted 500 Make-A-Wishes. Um, he's a guy who has never left them hanging, has always made wrestling his number one priority from the time he walked in until the time he walks out. I'm sure he'll do that. And his work for the top. And I just have so much respect for him and for the way he works. And by the way, it seems like a lot of the top wrestlers have that respect too. You always hear Austin and Flair and the others talk about them. Yet he gets no respect from the fans. And the smarkiest and... Mark is like, I'm definitely a Mark. There's no doubt. I'm a wrestling Mark from beginning to end. I'm not trying to disassociate myself with that. But it just frustrates me that these are the people that have the least reverence for him. And I just don't understand. I get burnout. Well, I get burnout. I get that. But yeah. I don't understand. I mean, he's had the best year of anyone they have. I don't even yeah, think that's debatable. I think that most of the people, I, I, I did a little video segment, uh, the guys from the Cheap Heat podcast like, didn't, went and did video out front of the Barclays Center this weekend, and 
and you know, just ask people funny questions and try to get answers and they, you know try to get comical answers. Um, and I asked a lot about John Cena, and the, the, I was expecting, I was trying to get people to explain why he's so terrible, and nobody really had anything bad to say. Um, the kids are all super crazy about him, and there are even some like super marks who were, who were fans. I think the worst thing that people could say was, you know, talk about burnout in a burnout. very general sense. I get that. I get but, that. But they were saying, they were saying, that's not me. That's what other people think. I think that, well, two things. One, your return to wrestling was sort of like the perfect. The, the most ideal way to, to emerge as a fan of John Cena because you missed all the the really mind-numbingly boring parts right and yep. and you came in, and you came in with low expectations <laughs> but, very low um, yeah but so I mean so you're in a, you're, you're in the perfect spot to appreciate him that said I think everybody appreciates him I think that the the anti Cena stuff is just part of the show at this point the Cena sucks chance it's like if uh, you know you might be uh, I guess identifying yourself as just sort of a kind of an indie rock wrestling fan by chanting that, but you don't really dislike John Cena at this point. If anything, it's a anti-establishment, you know, like chant that, that you do just to, to or, a, you know, please mix up, please, please change up things, WWE sort of chant. Um, I, I'm not, um, but I mean, but, I, but what you said is true. I mean, there are a lot of people that used to not like him, and I think he's just really brought a lot of people around. His run since WrestleMania, having the open challenge for the U.S. championship every night was the most brilliant thing they could have possibly done with him. I mean, it turned him basically into into a guy who's now beloved by, you know, the indie wrestling set. And it's that's that's something that is kind of incredible. And we talked about, when we talked at WrestleMania, how obviously the plan going forward was we put these other belts on Cena and Bryan. And the idea was, let's let these guys run with them and see if they can elevate them. And, of course, Daniel yeah. Bryan never really had the chance. But I don't mm-hmm. think even if we would have discussed it working to the best-case scenario, we could have imagined how well it actually worked out. Um, like, I would never would have thought I would have cared about the U.S. belt again. You know? And, yeah, and I mean, I think that's, that's totally valid, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and I argue with people all the time. And the thing that frustrates me the most is the idea that just because John Cena defeated you, he's then by by a process he's burying you. Like there's a huge uh, amount of love for uh, in these areas for Kevin Owens, and I get it because he is great. I get the appeal there. Like I see why he's so fun to like because he's got this great kind of smugness to him that comes off yeah. as really cool, and he moves amazingly well for his size. I mean, he's just he's a great person to enjoy. But I didn't understand how because John Cena beat it beat him uh that that was burying him at some level can you would, was there one is there was there any chance that hulk hogan or steve austin would have ever lost to that guy clean in the center in his first match in the company yeah. no i mean and, and and yeah i mean there's no there's no complaint about wrestling about contemporary wrestling that you can't immediately disprove by going to any point in the past so i mean so you were correct in saying that um but yeah i mean listen the, the barry be, Talking about guys getting buried is is the most overused term, you know, the most and misunderstood term. <laughs> Every time you know, someone and, loses. amongst wrestling fans, yeah. but but at the same time, you know, we're we exist in a world with with uh, easy access to message boards, to Reddit, to Twitter, to everything else. It's easy to see. It's easy to find people saying things you think are idiotic, um, and 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 to assume that these are the things people are saying. So and, and I'm and I'm as guilty as make, of you know making those generalizations as anybody else. I do see people talking about Tina burying people all the time, and I think it's dumb. But 
you know, at the same time, I try to give myself the perspective to say, you know, for every one person saying this, there are, you know, a trillion people not saying this. So <laughs> I think people get it more often than not. And, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's one of those conceits that's just widely misunderstood in wrestling. Um, and it, I, you know, it's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people have hate for Triple H's run at the top of the championship, you know, the top of the ranks, um, because he, you know, famously quote unquote buried, uh, Jeff Hardy and Chris, uh, Chris Jericho, you know, there, there's, there's other instances too, Booker T, um, but it's funny because like all of those things kind of have explanations if you get into it. You know, maybe not maybe not good enough explanations, but they have something. And um, you know, it's more of just like a way that you can make fun of a guy you already don't like, or that you can talk you can talk trash about a guy that you already don't like. You know, nobody talks about Ric Flair burying people when he was NWA champion, even though he like very very clearly states that he did. Right. Um, it's just, it's just a it's it's a sort of insult that you can hurl when you're already predisposed to dislike somebody. The sportscaster here finishing up with David Shoemaker, who unfortunately cannot talk to us all day, despite the fact that I would talk to him all day. <laughs> uh, a real few quick things that we'll just fly through real fast. Um, do you think that Cena will have 16 or 17 title reigns? Is that important to you? Do you think that should matter as much as it seems to matter to people? Um, do you th- and, and, and as a, a side question to that, do you think when he does break it, they will then adopt 21 or whatever Flair's number is for title reigns and to kind of creatively use that as a way to um, give something back to the fans who don't want to see it broke and nudge scene a little bit? Like, Do you think that's an out for them? What do you think about the whole situation they're in and title reigns and how big it's become? I mean, listen, uh, I, I'm, I'm the guy who always says title, reign, titles, title reigns don't matter in pro wrestling. They only matter in so much as they're a reflection of, um, you know, your, your place in the company. They could, give a, they, could, they could give the world title for one night to, you know, uh, who's at the bottom of the ladder right now, to, to Heath Slater or something like that. And, and, you know, he might be in some, some record book. He's going to be on the Wikipedia page, but it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't ma- magically make him better if they take it away five seconds later. Um, but certainly when you start talking about guys who have 15 championships, then you're, then you're in the, you know, I mean, that is a very clear uh, indicator of how significant that person was to the, to the wrestling product. And John Cena is, you know, undeniably that. Um, I think I'm, he will definitely have more, uh, I I wouldn't even be surprised if this current storyline ended up that in you know landing him in that place. Um, but I think if they uh, wanted to put some heat on the the Rollins and Triple H feud that it seems like they do, it'd be a great idea for Triple H to somehow help Cena uh, accomplish yeah. that and say, not only did I want uh, you to lose the title so bad that I gave away. My hero is Ric Flair, and his record is. I wanted it so badly that you know that there could be something there. I don't know. Those yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly. I think that's there's some there's a lot to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, every time I sort of start fantasy booking, then I start thinking about WrestleMania and and the the weird uh, the the level of sort of religious respect that that some, that Vince McMahon and other people inside the business have for WrestleMania. You can imagine them you know, kind of poo-pooing even the greatest booking plans and just to save it, save it for WrestleMania, um, save the 16th championship or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, 
it's it's wrestling is as much as I like have fun trying to predict outcomes in my in my writing. It's it's the most impossible thing to predict. I mean, it's harder to predict than like you know Division three A basketball games. Like it's just because there's so many ways you can be right about the impulse and about the end point. Um, but there's just so many ways to get there and so many different, like it could happen tonight. It could happen next month. It could happen in six months. It could, you know, be tossed out the back because, because the wrestler got hurt. It's just impossible to predict this stuff. Well, let's do this as a last thing then. SummerSlam's over and obviously they've positioned the company right now where it's built around two shows, one in August and one in April or whatever. And it just so happens that this one coming up in April now, it's not only going to be the biggest show of the year, but in some ways they're going to try to make it the biggest show in the history of the company. And I mean that not in the sense of Grill Monsoon would sign on to every pay-per-view and say you're get ready for the most important night in wrestling history. <laughs> but, you know, this is different because CM Punk famously said on his way out on that podcast that, you know, WrestleMania sells WrestleMania. They don't have to do anything. And I think he's true to some extent. But when you put WrestleMania in a building that will look empty if 70,000 people showed up, there's something needs to be bigger there. So from now to then, what do you think needs to happen, should happen, would happen? What, what as a wrestling fan, what should you be anticipating as we build now from this sh- big show that we just walked away from to the next big show, which is not only a big show, but maybe the biggest? What you should expect is that every professional wrestler from the past 20 years who can walk will be there. I mean, that's, that, what, no, I mean, there's, that's it, full stop. Um, WWE takes very seriously the ability to say that they have the attendance record at every football stadium that they run. And the reason why they can do it, I mean, this is sort of like pretty obvious, but the reason why they can do that is because they can fit all these seats on the field that other people have, like, you know, where the sidelines are, you know, all that stuff. Uh So, um, you know, it's a really, it's a cool thing. I mean, it, it's, I'm not, I'm not making fun of them. It's really cool that they're able to say that. You know, that we, that we sold, we sold more tickets at the, you know, the Superdome, the Silverdome, than anybody else did. Um, and the, I mean, you're right. They're running up against this weird quandary in Dallas. Where like, is it even possible to sell that many tickets? You know, I mean, because when they talk about their attendance at WrestleMania, they sell a bunch of seats, but they're papering the upper decks. I mean, that's not. I mean, anybody is if they're running right. a stadium Absolutely. that big. Yeah. But at some point, you're getting to you're you're you know, there's not it's not like like it at uh, at the at Barclays, you know, at for SummerSlam, people were selling nosebleeds. People were were selling nosebleeds outside the stadium for two fifty. Yeah, I mean, that's to get in a that's, while. that's insane, right? Yeah, Flair and said. There, Flair said in there will podcast. never be a WrestleMania where you can't where you can't get a, you know, a nosebleed ticket for 50 bucks or right. 20 bucks, you know? I mean, that's just, it's just not, or, or for free, you know, where to go. It's just not going to happen. So the question is, you know, if, if we have say 40, 50,000 diehards, is that enough? Can we find, can we find the other, whatever, like 30,000 people, like on the streets of Dallas? Like, it was just, other like casual fans that'll stop by. Like, I think it's totally feasible. Um, but I think that it would be, I think that it would be folly to, if WWE thought they knew the answer to it right now. And that's why they're going to just do everything they can. They're going to have Undertaker probably wrestling his retirement match. They're going to, you know, offer Shawn Michaels whatever it'll take for him to have one last match. They're going to have Stone Cold swing in a chair at somebody because he probably can't do the stunner anymore. Right. Um, they're they're, they're going to do they're going to do everything. And, you know, um, I think that it it has the potential to be 
like a really really awesome time i mean just imagine i mean wrestling fans will remember how much weird fun the sting versus triple h match at wrestlemania last year was when it just ended up devolving into this nwo versus dx schmoz i mean if the if the more of that stuff the better i mean i'll say there's there's a ceiling for it but like i but that kind of stuff is great and and wrestling fans old and young love it so uh so I'll be very interesting to see what they do. I have no idea. I mean, honestly, no idea uh, what the what the what the tentative lineup looks like at this point. Um, my guess is that they're going to find a way to do Brock versus Undertaker three there, but that's right. but who knows? They might get rid of that. Um, it, it'll be it, it, you know. I, I'm, I predict that I I, pre, I tried to predict it a couple months ago. I said and I said Brock Undertaker three and. I think that the Stephanie and Triple H versus Rousey and Rock is going to happen there that they teased last year. But, I mean, it's, it, there's no telling. There's so many balls in the air for this one. It's going to be crazy to watch. Well, David Shoemaker writes about all this craziness for Grantland uh, pretty much weekly, mostly weekly, around that. Um, obviously, you can find that at grantland.com. You can find David on Twitter at aka the Masked Man on Twitter and the Cheap Heat podcast that definitely runs weekly, uh, and you can find that in many of the same places that you find this show. Just for them, you look to the top, and for us, you look to the bottom. Um, so if you're near us, you got to go way up, and if you're near them, you're trying to find me, you got to go way down. Um, thank you so much for being on again. Love having you every time. David Shoemaker is a good guy because he goes out of his way for some reason to come here to this show. I don't understand why, but he does. So we're I got to stay true to the people who were uh, good to me in the beginning, man. Yeah, we're very appreciative of that. And you know what, David? We would make unbelievable trivia partners. Because when I was listening Listen, to that when, show... When, when, I get, when, I, when I'm answering trivia questions that, you know, that, that, that where my, my mind is not totally messed up by the betrayal of my childhood idol, Hulk Hogan, <laughs> I, I, do, I do slightly better. But, uh, but you know, you, but anyway. were great, you were great at the stuff I would stink at. Like, you were great at, like, that one category where the, the kayfabe only, I would have stuck uh-huh. at that. I don't know anyone's name. But, like, I couldn't believe that nobody seemed to know the Bret Hart one about winning the championship at all three. Because as soon as that question was answered or asked, I thought about it for a second. I'm like... Oh wait a minute! Two of those matches are like my two of my top five favorite SummerSlam matches: the Kurt Henning one, the Demolition one, yeah. and then there was and I remembered Undertaker five times and the, the chair. So I, I'm good at that. I knew right away that um, Butch Reed was the the question for Savage. Like I'm good at that stuff, especially in that period. But I was, so we'd be good partners, you know. So maybe next time if you guys are looking for someone, I you know, hey, I'm I'm available. All right, man. We'll keep you on the list. All right. Thanks, buddy. Uh, Talk to you soon, man. Sounds good. All right. I want to thank David Shoemaker, the masked man, for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate that. It's Thursday. Thursday afternoon here in Buffalo, about 4 o'clock, I'm going to do a real quick book club update, and then I'm going to get this thing online. Before I do that, we talked in the update about how uh, we recorded on Tuesday. So that was obviously before the decision on Tom Brady was made final. And after you've heard what we talked briefly about it in the Three Things segment, you know that I am very happy uh, that Commissioner Goodell... Got his ass smacked around a little bit in court today. 
Uh, the NFL embarrassed themselves every step of the way on this. And it was never about Brady and whether he did it or not to me. It's always been about the unreasonable amount of control uh, that Goodell has imposed on the league. Unfair suspensions that every time they're challenged in a court uh, do not stand up. So I'm glad he got his ass kicked. And Don and I will talk a lot more about it next week. Quick book club update. In a second, we're going to take a break and talk with David DeSola, the author of Alice in Chains, The Untold Story, which is nothing short of a spectacular read uh, on Alice in Chains. And we're going to talk with uh, David for quite a while about this in a second. Uh, but it's worth the time. Please pick it up. The other book, Hell to the Redskins, Gibbs, the Diesel, the Hogs, and the Glory Days of DC's Football Dynasty, plus Doug, Dexter, Daryl, Rip, Theismann, the Posse, the Fun Bunch, and the rest of the gang by Adam Lazarus. Uh, we talked to Adam last week on the podcast, and you can find that uh, on our website and on Adam's website. Uh, friends of the podcast. Uh, can do anything they want with the podcast, including uh, Adam isolated the interview. It's up on his site. Uh, it looks great there, and we're proud it's there. Uh, please read Adam's book. It's up there. So let's take a break, and we'll come back with David DeSola. Our next guest lives in Los Angeles and is a graduate of Tufts. He also has master's degrees from USC and Georgetown. He's a freelance journalist who's done work for CBS News, CNN, among others, and he's the author of a book called Alice in Chains, The Untold Story, which is part of our book club, Book of the Month. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to David DeSola. How's it going today, David? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited. Love the book. Um, really enjoyed reading it. I'm trying to think even how I how I first learned of it. I think that I'm really. I mean, I mean, I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy. I've been to mm-hmm. 78 Pearl Jam shows, and um, just I mean, I I was a freshman in high school in 1994, so I kind of was. You know, this kind of the Seattle scene or whatever was huge when I was in my formative years of enjoying music and was a fan really of all the four um, Seattle bands. And I think on Facebook, actually, uh, on the um, I'm like on a 10 club fan forum or something, and someone posted a link uh, to an article that Alternative Press did maybe uh, about the book. And I remember <laughs> the first thought I had was, Oh, there's a book called Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. You know what? Their story is untold. I want to hear that. So, Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it wasn't my first choice for the title, but I thought it was an accurate description of, of what it, what was in it, at least. I mean, you're, cause you're hearing, um, you're hearing stuff that, that hasn't been reported before. You're hearing from people who have never gone on the record before. Um, so I think that was, um, even though it's, you know, like I said, not my first choice, but I thought it was an accurate description of, of what the book is. Yeah, and you talk about how in the book you were working on something for school and you decided to listen to Dirt. 
And while you're listening to Dirt, you maybe looked into learning more about the band and realized that the story didn't exist. And that was sort of your motivation to do the book, to have that accurately? Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, basically, I had had Dirt in some shape or form uh, probably since 92 or 93 because that's, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm a little positive, I, I would have heard Man in the Box, but for some strange reason, just Dirt is the first album I had in some shape or form, and I've had it in different formats over the years. And by that at that time, I probably hadn't heard it in several years. So I just put it on, and I was just like, wow, okay, I kind of rediscovered it. And, uh, you know, and at that point, I was, you know, I, I just figured, you know, okay, Lane had, had passed away, you know, maybe, what, nine years earlier, so I thought maybe somebody would have written something by now, and when there wasn't anything along the lines of what I was looking for, at that point, I that's when I got the idea for it. Um, I did a lot of uh, prep work, a lot of research and things like that first, uh, before deciding to actually go through it, and, and uh, well, here we are. Were you looking for something to write a book about, or is it more that the topic came, so you decided to write the book? Um... You know, I if you had told me even like the day before that I was going to write a book, I wouldn't laugh at you. Okay. <laughs> it's just, it just didn't. It's. It, 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 I'm sure I would have loved to. I'm sure I would have written a book about something eventually in my career, but um, you know, it just happened that uh, you know, uh, you know, number one, I was looking for something that didn't exist, and I had a very sort of specific vision of what I wanted it to, how I wanted to read and and you know, what should be in it, uh, how, how, or at least how the story should be covered. And um, I think I did most of that. But also, I just think that, uh, you know, it was at the right uh, time in my uh, in my career where I could do this. And so, you know, the first year, you know, I was juggling work and school. When I wasn't, I wasn't doing one, I was doing the other, and I just go back and forth. Um, sometimes it got pretty hairy because, you know, you're juggling you know, two or three classes, and you got a you know fifty-page master's thesis due and a four-hour comp exam at the end of the at the end of the year to graduate. So it was, uh, yeah, I had to I had to set it down for a while. But you know, once school was out and uh, you know took some time off, everything you know I went right back to it. You talk in the book about how you didn't want to call it an unauthorized biography, or you don't really like that term. And I don't blame you because it does kind of lend to this sort of like seediness, which the book isn't at all. Um, and I think I told you on Twitter how, or maybe I just tweeted generally, just how I feel mm-hmm. like if there comes a point where the people who decided not to be a part of this book took the time to read it or heard about it, I have a feeling that they're going to think, oh, man, that, that probably was the right place. That probably was the guy who oh. should have talked to um, well, I mean, you know, they, you know, I, I haven't heard anything from them, so I mean, you have to ask them. I'm not going to pretend to speak for them, or oh no, well, there was a thought processes, but um, but as you know, as far as the, you know, I mean, you know, they, it's they're right. I mean, not just the band members or or whoever, but I mean, any there are a lot of people who there were other people who, who declined in the interview for various reasons, and you know, that's their right, it's their decision, and I had to respect it. Yeah, um, and so, no, I, I mean, didn't. Uh, I didn't expect you to speak for them as much. I was curious, like overall, what the reason was when people decided not to talk. Was it just that? Um, you know, without naming names, there's just various reasons. Some people, um, you know, they wouldn't talk because it wasn't authorized by the band, or 
you know, some people, you know, just, you know, didn't, didn't want to talk about it. Um, and maybe they found something about, you know, for example, you know, Lane or Mike, uh, to be, you know, kind of painful to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some, some people are just private and just didn't want to, didn't want to talk about it. And, you know, that's, it's, you know, it's their, that's, that's their right and that's their, that's their prerogative. I mean, I don't have subpoena power. I can't, you know, <laughs> compel them to talk to me. So. Well, you know, when I was, uh, when I was reading it, just as sort of aside, I mean, I never felt like, oh man, this book exists without enough people to, I mean, it, it, it worked out fine. And like I said, I think in the end they'll, it's just my opinion that they'll regret maybe not doing it in this spot uh, because it is such a thorough and fair book. And you talk really early. It's interesting about the band's history, about how they evolve and how the different band members meet. And there's a really interesting story in there about how when they're putting the band together, um, Mike and Sean have like a connection uh, because I think Sean's dating Mike's sister or something like that. Uh, it's like right. Well, they they they, they I think they'd known each other since they were like in middle school. I think some somehow I wasn't able to pinpoint what the exact connection was. So, but I mean, there there was a, a, a some there was there was a backstory there going to the I guess adolescent years, and uh, you know, and then Sean eventually started dating uh, my sister Melinda, who plays a key role in the story twice. Uh, you know, very in the or very early history of Alice. First is the sort of a she's the she gets it's her phone number that Sean Kenny gives to Lane when he says, "Hey, call me if you're looking for a drummer." Right. You know. So and then later on, um, you know, it's she's the one who gives Randy Hauser the band's demo. Um, it wasn't labeled or anything at the time, so Randy hears this demo and he's like, "I want you know, who's this band? What is it? What is it? What is it?" And you know, it isn't so much later. That he figures out it's it's Melinda's boyfriend's band, <laughs> and so I mean there you go. I mean Melinda Melinda Starr, you know she was there for, and she's you know for two key parts of the early history. Yeah, and the history is really interesting because uh, the way the band kind of evolves and put is put together is really explained very well in the book, and it's really interesting too how you have kind of these two animals in the book. Right, there's on one side the music and the evolution of the music through the years. And then the other kind of part of the book is the evolution of the drugs through the years um, and how that affects the band. And it's really, yeah, it's really done very well. The way the two sort of are mirrored and paralleled and you can kind of see when they intertwine and when they don't, it's, it's really well done. And you talk about how, um, you know, maybe some people will be put off, but obviously you wouldn't be a responsible biographer, not to mention it, because it is just such a such a huge part of what the band wrote and performed about and, and ultimately what affected the band at every right. stage. Right. I mean I knew going in going in, once once I decided to do this, I knew I knew right off the bat that that was something I was gonna have to address one way or another. Um otherwise it would just would have been a complete whitewash. So, uh, the, you know, and, you know, it wasn't just Alice in the story here. I mean, you know, Seattle, you know, I guess with all these, you know, drug, all these deaths that happened during, during this period, you know, from, I guess, Andrew Wood. Right. That's kind of the know, first through, one. All, from Andrew Wood on, there's a series of 
drug-related and non-drug-related deaths, I kind of, you know, sort of cast a cloud over the whole place. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was, even though not all of them are covered in this book, but it's just, you know, it was something that I was going to have to uh, address one way or the other. And, you know, when, um, you know, and when the, when the band, you know, write, or well, I should say Lane specifically, is writing all these songs about drugs, I mean, he's opening himself up, you know, to legitimate journalistic questions about the subject matter. Right. I mean, there's just no, there's, 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 there's no way he, they couldn't have asked him about it, you know, and maybe he was a little too honest for his own good in that respect, because obviously he got fed up with all the questions and the gossip and the rumors later on, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what it is. I mean, it's, it's, and, you know, ultimately the, 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 the sort of the balancing test that I had to sort of, the, the, you know, the little tightrope I had to walk there was, you know, one, to make sure that I, you know, reported what I found out fairly and accurately, but at the same time that I didn't sort of glamorize or sensationalize it, you know, I wasn't trying to write Requiem for a Dream in Seattle, you know, I didn't want this to be, be like a Hunter Thompson novel, uh, you know, so it's, 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 it was a fairly, uh, tricky, um, editorial process, but I, I, I you know, I, I wrote it as, as best as I could and as fairly as I could, and I hope it comes across that way. It absolutely did. And, you know, it's interesting because in, I think it's Duff McKagan's first book, he writes about how heroin was affecting so many of his friends and so many people that that was why he made the decision to go to Los Angeles and obviously eventually become in, uh, in Guns N' Roses and go on from there. And then it's kind of like the 90s scene in Seattle, the kind of the first dark cloud of drugs is Andrew Wood and I personally didn't realize you always hear about you know Chris Cornell the roommate of um the roommate of Andrew Wood mm-hmm. and their closeness mm-hmm. and obviously he was also very honest about that relationship on the double the dog record mm-hmm. and then you hear mm-hmm. and then you obviously you think about you know Adi Vedder never even gets to that scene maybe if that doesn't happen and that connection there but I never really thought about Lane and and it was really interesting to me uh, and really sort of impactful how you wrote about how affected uh, Lane was by it. And um, you also even write in there and a, f- a few different people uh, provide stories about how they're really surprised uh, with Lane's addiction because in the early days he was often very against heroin and would speak out against it quite a bit. Yeah. Well, you, you got to remember, I mean, the, uh, Andrew was the first, was the first one to die in that whole era. And I mean, he was, he was a rock star in Seattle. I mean, I don't think Mother Love One ever took off nationally at all because remember he died before the um, album came out. You know, yeah. a couple of days before the album was supposed to come out. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that was a you know very very traumatic moment for the city and for that little that little music scene. Um, you know, there's a couple of quotes from Cornell I got in there from uh, I think it was from the Pearl Jam documentary. You know, he talked about how you know to that point, you know, there was this little scene of musicians that had supported each other and the world was our oyster and you know and then this happened you know and that was sort of the end of the innocence you know so it, it, it you know it was a traumatic moment um that's one thing i found i had to trim that section down a little bit but one thing i found um i spent a couple of days in seattle public library looking through old newspaper clippings and articles you know i found um you know some in-depth Profiles or features of Wood after after he passed. I think I don't know if you want to call it an obituary or just a you know just a more of a, a like a 
post-mortem feature or whatever you want to call it. But, uh, you know, they, they, they shed a lot more light on, on his, uh, there, were, there were a lot more comments and little anecdotes there about his life and, and his, his views on drugs and so forth. Now, Lane himself, you know, I should point out, you know, we're talking, I guess, late 80s here, uh, like 88, 87, 88, 89. I mean, he'd do every other drug that was available to him. I mean, marijuana, (laughs) cocaine, Cocaine, acid, and mushrooms that I know of. Um, But, I mean, he drew the line of heroin openly. Now, why he changed his mind a couple of years later, that I was not able to find out. And that's probably one of the great, great questions that we may just never know the answer to. And I thought that was another really interesting quote in the book. I think it was maybe Demery's mom who had it, where she said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, something about, you know, if you loved Lane, you might want to blame Demery for introducing the heroin. And if and if you loved my daughter, you might want to blame Lane, you know. And Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it, I think it's an, it's, it's an interesting Perfected to hear from her, obviously. I mean, she knew them both very well. Right. Um, she loved, she loved mine dearly. Um, and she's also a, a, a drug counselor by profession. So, I mean, she knows the, you know, she knows how this thing, this thing, you know, sort of plays out. I mean, it's, it's an interesting sort of, uh, I think natural human response too. you know, to just, you know, it's never, you know, it's never, you know, your loved one's fault. It's somebody else that's, right. you know, that's, that's getting them to do these, these, these things. Um, you know, I, I never blamed Demery or Elaine or anyone else. I do think people are responsible for their own actions. And I think I said words without a fact in the text. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I don't think they were bad people. I think they made some bad choices and, you know, they, God, it, you know, it was, and it is an illness. It is a, there is a medical, there's a medical, uh, issue there that, 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 you know, causes them to become dependent on the, on the stuff. And it's not pretty. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, it's really just, a, you know, it's a shame. Um, you know, it's, but, um, you know, that, that's the story. I mean, I can't, those are the facts. I can't, you can't change that. You can't, you can't spin it. You can't, Put a, put a, you know, can't whitewash it. You can't glorify it. I mean, that's that's what happened. Let's take a break from the drugs for a second and talk a little bit more about the scene because yeah. one of the coolest thing about being a fan of these bands or, or being a fan of the the scene or um, trying to avoid the the use of the word grunge, but maybe um, you know, for casual listeners or for casual music fans, that might be the best way to identify it, but. It's always been, and, and Cameron Crowe did a good job in his documentary, which you mentioned with the Chris Cornell piece of, and other places as well. Um, the Grunge is Dead book that you reference a lot of times in yours and, and in your book as well, which we'll talk about how you do it as, really well as well. It's always mentioned how these bands are always there to sort of support each other. Um, a cool thing, one of my favorite things about your book is you bring something up like, I don't know, maybe like the Ring Them Bells uh, cover, for example. I'd be like, oh, I haven't heard that in 15 years, so I'd go and look at it. Or when uh, the rock line where Lane called in, and you mentioned that, and I, I was like, oh, I don't think I've ever heard that, and I'd go on YouTube and, and watch it. And um, there was something I was watching, I can't remember what. Oh, it must have just been when you were talking about the Lollapalooza tour or something like that. And I found this great video, and I don't remember who the guy was. He's kind of a clown, but he's interviewing 
uh, Lane, Chris, and Vetter. All three of them were kind of standing there, and they were talking, and there was just this incredible camaraderie. It was such a great part about the scene, the way these bands always seem to intertwine and support each other, and um, it just was a really great sense of community and maybe reflect right. some of why there was so much success. Yeah, well, I think, well, I mean, you know, if, if Seattle is as all as, you know, even before grunge, I mean, they, they, they had a track record for producing, you know, musicians. I mean, you look at Hendrix, you look at Hart, you look at Queens, like uh, Quincy Jones grew up in Bremerton, which is right across Puget Sound. Um, so, I mean, you know, whatever they have in the water up there, it works. <laughs> Uh, but as far as, you know, grunge goes, I think, you know, I think what happened there was, um, I think, you know, you know, hard to believe, but at the time, we're talking about the 70s and 80s, you know, Seattle wasn't considered a big market for musicians to travel in. Yeah, I mean, Elton John came and, you know, Elton and, and Van Halen came, you know, Lane saw them when he was growing up, growing up as a kid, but, I mean, it wasn't, you know, what it is now. Um, so... I think, you know, in, in people attribute the rise of the grunge scene in part to just the, ge- the geographic location, and specifically the isolation. I mean, you're, there aren't a whole lot of big cultural cities, like, you know, Los Angeles is about a thousand miles south, you know, Minneapolis, where you have, you know, Prince and the replacements, and Dave's in Toyland and all these people, that's, you know, like 1,500 miles east, right. you know, Chicago, you know, a little farther out than that. So, you know, it's this little scene that developed, you know, with a bunch of kids, um, you know, playing for themselves and their peers. And I think there was a, there was a, there was a purity and an integrity and an honesty to it that, um, that, that didn't, that kind of went away after 1991 because there was no commercial expectations involved. I mean, nobody thought, you know, we're going to sell millions of records and get rich. Yeah, I mean, people did it because they liked it, and, and and you know they wrote for themselves. They didn't write for a mass audience. Um, so I mean, and the other thing also you have to point out is that there was an infrastructure there. I mean, you had recording studios, you had um, you had a couple of venues that they could play, Central Tavern, the Vogue. Um, very briefly, you had the Metropolis for about a year and a half. Um, you know, so and you had a and you had a you had an audience that, that you had an audience that just liked it, like like the hometown scene. So, I mean, it was it, you know I think all the elements were there, and you know it's just funny how you know Nirvana. I mean, obviously everybody. I think in the, it's fair, it'd be fair to say that in the collective unconscious, collective consciousness, everybody uh, sort of associates the rise of drugs with Nirvana. But Nirvana were really their own separate animal. I mean, they developed in Aberdeen, came out of Aberdeen, which is about two hours away from Seattle. Um, they weren't, you know, part like Alice or Mother Love Bone or Greek River or Malfunction or uh, Soundgarden or Mudhoney or whoever, where they were playing local Seattle shows. They were from Seattle, but they were playing local bars and clubs. Um, so, but it's interesting how they all sort of just came together at the same time. And it's interesting how Alice is kind of in the middle of all this stuff, even though a lot of people kind of forget. I mean, they were co-managed by Susan Kelly Taylor. Curtis for a while, Kelly Curtis who managed Pearl Jam. Um, they were, um, you know, of course, they, you know, Susan managed both them and Soundgarden for a while. So, I mean, obviously that, there's that connection as well. Um, and Nirvana, I mean, there were some, you know, interesting connections there. I mean, you know, Susan 
has told the story, you know, how, you know, Nirvana would come to her office and get them in and say, hey, you know, can, you know, they'd want to meet people in LA or in the, in the music business or whatever. And she introduces them to the guy who will later become their lawyer. And, you know, fast forward 20 plus years later, Chris Novoselic publicly thanked Susan during his induction speech into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it's, it's interesting how, you know, this A, the scene came together, and B, how Alice was sort of in the middle of it. And, and even though, you know, their role in it gets, kind of gets forgotten. I mean, they open, the other thing I was forget, they used to open for Mother Love Bone. And when Pearl Jam was starting out, they opened for Alice. Um, you know, they played these, these little club shows on the West, club tour on the West Coast when they were both touring in vans. And then, um, at, for the live, the live at the Moore show, the Facebook, the live Facebook video, if you've ever seen that one. Oh, yeah. The opening act of that show was Pearl Jam. Then still, at the time, they were still Mookie Blaylock. But there's video of, and I think there's video of that in the Cameron Crowe documentary where, uh, Cornell comes out and plays, and plays, uh, plays in Temple of the Dog with them. Right, and I think that uh, the first Pearl Jam show ever, the ten twenty two ninety show, Allison Chains is on the bill for that as well, right? I, I think I think where it was, but um, I can't remember where it was. But you even mentioned you mentioned it in the book that they, I can't remember if Alice opened for them as a favor or if Alice went on after them. But no, I think I, I, Alice was already out of the gate at that point. I mean, they'd already signed and they'd already made facelift. So I mean, by nineteen ninety. You know, Alice, by 1990, Alice has already made facelift and they're already touring behind it. So, um, yeah, Pearl Jam, and Pearl Jam were starting out from, from nothing, from zero. Yeah, this so, was the very, very first show. Probably. They had only been a band for like eight days at that point, Pearl Jam. So, yeah, yeah. That, that was very so, early. But Alice helped them that night as well. Um, while we're on the subject, I thought one of the guys in the book that really came off, one of the characters in the book that really came off as a bigger saint than I already thought he was, was Mike, Mike McCready. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, sort of like a, a symbol of my naivety as a 15 or 16-year-old. I remember when, faced the day that the Mad Season record came out, and uh, I got home from school, and I asked my mom if she would take me to, to get it. And we were, dri- we were driving there, it's a true story, and I was telling my mom all about how excited I was to get it, because obviously it meant that finally Lane was clean, and uh, was feeling really well, was able to do this record, and, um, you know, how excited I was about it. And I think we had a similar conversation when the next Alice in Chains record came out, and uh, certainly the lyrics to Grind helped uh, boost my theory on how it just was all a symbol of everything being okay and Lane doing better. And, of course, the book sort of uh, crushes those those uh, those youthful Sorry. those youthful theories, but... It did make me feel really good uh, to know that, you know, one of the main reasons Mad Season ever even happened was uh, just because Mike McCready really wanted to try to help Lane if he could through that project. I mean, yeah, I think he said, I think he said in an interview after he, after Lane's death that, uh, that, uh, you know, he wanted to lead by example and, you yeah. know, so he, you know, by being around other musicians who, you know, were sober uh, that he could, he could do the same. Um, you know, the band, I mean, the band came together because he met Baker, he became friends with Baker while he was in rehab. So it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, Baker is one of those characters. I mean, even though he wasn't, he, he was older, he wasn't of the Seattle scene, so to speak. I mean, he came up in the Chicago blues scene, but I mean, 
again, I mean, our knows no ge- geographic boundary or age or age differential. I mean, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, and one thing that I think Baker's brother told me was funny is, you know, he would go, he was going to AA meetings, you know, because in his what you know, Baker told him was that it was the alcoholics who had it right. So that if you went to an AA meeting, an alcoholics anonymous meeting, he said that people were just trying to network and deal and sell stuff to each other. Right. So right. it was just, there's a very sort of perverse humor to it, but he's, um, you know, but it's interesting that that mad season comes together during this, you know, this very turbulent period where, you know, Pearl Jam is being very successful and, and, you know, Mike is having his issues with, with drinking and, you know, uh, Alice had, had broken up, gone on hiatus, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, because Lane had relapsed. So it's, it was, uh, sort of an interesting confluence of events that all these, these things came together. The Sportscasters are here with David DeSola. He's the author of an awesome new book, Allison Chains, The Untold Story. Uh, you can get it on Amazon and, uh, bookstores. You can also follow David on Twitter. He's at David D-E-S-O-L-A. Uh, a couple more things before I let you go real quick. Um, one thing that, I, I watched while I was reading this book was I went back and I, I pulled out the uh, the DVD I have of the Unplugged and uh, wanted to talk to you about this. So I was watching the DVD and it was actually before I had gotten to that part of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was kind of watching it again with a little bit of naivety maybe or, or not completely knowing what was going on that night. Um, and I'm kind of watching in the beginning and obviously, you know, Lane is there and he's very kind of withdrawn at the beginning. He's kind of hiding behind his glasses, um, which is very typical of him. And, um, there's some mistakes early, um, tentativeness. Maybe you just don't feel like it. And then they play wood and, I don't know if it's the first time Wayne takes his glasses off or if it's the second, but it's just the first time in the night where I feel like, wow, they just absolutely killed that. And I think when it finishes, like uh, Mike Mike Inez and the the uh, other guitar player that they added for the night, is it Scott Olson or something like that? Yeah, Scott Olson, yeah. yeah. He's, he was a part at the time, I believe. Right, they, they give a big high five. And um, then after the song, Lane makes a joke about how it was the um, the be- it's the best show they've played in three years, and I think it was either Sean well, the only show they've played in right, three yeah, years. Yeah, Sean and Jerry comes back <laughs> with that. But the thing about it that really gives me chills, and I've watched it several times since, after the solo, the kind of last vocal run that Lane goes in the song, it ends with the, if I would, could you... Um, it's amazing how he he's when he decides to really look into the camera, like what parts, and I had already read in the book how that was Jerry's song, maybe about Andrew Wood, and it just felt like it was a real moment of self awareness and self reflection from Lane, where he was maybe singing and realizing that he was really well into the Andrew Wood path. And just kind of mm-hmm. like the emotion of the performance, I just thought it was unbelievable. And you talked yeah, a little bit. The other thing I would say about that is, I think, especially when that when he screams that final vocal at the end, I think you could notice that some of his vocal power is just gone at that point. 
I mean, it's not, it doesn't, he's not, you know, belting it out like he did on the studio version. Or if you listen to some of the live cuts from the Dirt tour, so like 92, 93. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, yeah, I mean, it was a great show. It was a great performance despite, you know, the difficulties leading up to it. Um, you know, and it's, it's, um, you know, and as far as the, the bloopers go, I mean, I think if you notice that Lane had a little note with all the lyrics on it, as long as he was forgetting the stuff, um, I don't know, maybe he just got nervous or something. I don't know. Toby Wright, who was Alice's producer for that show and produced a couple of albums for them, said, said that he thought that, that he was nervous because, uh, during the, the song where he kept, where they, they put some of the outtakes, the bloopers in, was, right, Slug Factory. Factory. Yeah. And he said that he said that Lane was messing up because Don Einer and Michelle were sitting right in front of him in the front row. And, you know, there's that line in the song about them, you know, you know, call me up, you know, congratulations ain't the reason why, you know, that they, you tell about, so, but, you know, when he called them, during the making of the dog album and said, yeah, nine days to finish the record. And he got, nine days. he wrote, wrote that into the middle of the song. So he thinks that that was, he th- Toby thought that was, that was why Wayne was, was, uh, was screwing up. Yeah. Um, and you do a great so, job telling but, both of those stories in the book too. Sorry. Say it said you did a great job telling, you know, before the performance, you kind of tell the story mm-hmm. of the phone call and then, you know, it tied mm-hmm. all together really nicely when it came to that part too. I really enjoyed that. Some of the really great uh, anecdotes in the book. You know, the other thing I thought was interesting is if you look at, you know, it's funny, you look online and you see people who who do like this, like, photo montage of Wayne over the years from, you know, I guess like 89 through the end. And it's kind of striking even from, I don't know, say two years earlier, two or three years earlier, whenever, um, you know, how, how, uh, how it was kind of striking how his appearance had changed and not just because of the pink hair. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, you know, he just, he just looked fitter. I mean, he's not so skinny guy to begin with, but even then, I mean, I, I don't know how much he weighed at the time, but he looked very, very thin. And, and it, it, of course, it wouldn't get better as the years went on. But, um, you know, that's, that's something that sort of stands out to me in my mind. Um, you know, and of course, you know, two, you know, two months later, whatever, they, uh, they go out and they do those, those shows opening for Kiss. And those wound up being Lane's final public performances. Now, if you you know if you want to look on the internet, I don't know if you've seen this. Yeah, I watched you know, it the other day. Got, mm-hmm. Yeah, you saw you yep. saw the the last Kiss show in, yep. in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Yep, I was amazed. I was amazed at that, how well documented this the whole story was, just in general. And I mean, you know, think about it. Somebody, you know, ninety six. You know, cell phone cameras don't exist. Right. You know, and I mean, somebody had to sneak a video camera into the show and shoot that whole thing. And you know, little did they know, they would get Lane's final public performance. I mean, that was a that was a historic show. Yeah. So, and and, and it was surprisingly good audio and video quality too. I mean, it, you know, if uh, any of your listeners out there are curious, I would, I would highly recommend that they go and watch that from start to finish. Look it up on YouTube. That one, uh, that one Rio show too that you talk about in the book a bunch is on YouTube too. I watched that. Yeah, 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 that was Mike Starr's final performance. Right, in right, and I, I went back and I had watched it already. But then when you get to it in the book, I went back to watch if I could like notice him crying or whatever during Man in the Box. I couldn't, but um, yeah, that, I, mean, I couldn't. I couldn't really see. I couldn't yeah, really I couldn't see tell. It. Yeah, they, they had a camera in front of them, but they didn't like. They would go to like a wide shot, or they go to Lane, or they go to Jerry, or whatever. So you don't you don't really see too many shots of just on of Mike himself. But it's interesting to watch that show knowing that that is his final performance and they just didn't even say anything they're like hey this is my last show without yeah, it no. you know? 
you know, give them a big round of applause. You know, nothing. They just walked off the stage, and that was it. That was it. Uh, well, uh, a couple last things I'll let you go. I know we're getting long. Um, while I was reading the book, one thing that happened was it became the 25th anniversary of Facelift being released. And um, we already had Nirvana go into the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. And uh, yep. I mean, I, I'm a fan of Nirvana, but they're my, definitely my fourth of the four. Um, next year, mm-hmm. next year, Pearl Jam will be eligible, and they're definitely getting in. Um, yeah. Soundgarden sort have of been eligible for a couple of years. And now. I don't know when they, they would have counted it if it's from like the you know the I'm guessing that first EP they did for Sub Pop, which I think was in eighty seven, eighty six or eighty seven. I don't remember the exact date, but right. Yeah, so Soundgarden have been eligible for a while now, but they haven't gotten the nod yet. What do you think about Alice in Chains' chances? Is it something you ask people about when you're researching this book? Do you ever get a feel well, for it? it? I mean, you know, it's not up to me, and it's not up to me or, or, or us. I mean, you know, it's up to the you know the people from the hall, the voters. I think it's like five or six hundred voters, or whatever. And it's the process is a little. Um, the process basically is you, you, they, they come up with a short list of about a dozen or so, and then. The then maybe like five or seven, of that short list, maybe like five to seven each year will get inducted. Right. Um, you know, last year it was you know Green Day, Nine Inch, Nine Inch Nails, their first year of eligibility. I thought I'm a huge Nine Inch Nails fan, but also just because of what he did for industrial music and and hard rock in general, I thought and and also his success as a composer, I thought Trent would would be a lock to get in in his first year of eligibility. Green Day made it, but he didn't. Go right. figure. Yeah, I know. They're, <laughs> so, they're a no-brainer, you, know, you can never yeah. predict these things. I mean, you look at some of the bands that have been, you know, that have that have been shut out over the years. I mean, right, like the Deep you know, Purple. Did he get in until a couple of years ago? Even though they did just a long time. Deep Purple still isn't in there. Right. Joy Division, another one of my favorite bands, still isn't in there. You know, Willie Nelson, The Cure. I mean, it's very took Rush you know, fourteen years. Took Heart thirteen years. I think Jerry actually mentions in the book. About how he, it wasn't something he thought he cared about until he went with heart, and then he he maybe thought yeah. that that might be cool. yeah, and that, is, and that it's nice to be nice to be right. appreciated for your work, um, you know, and it's it's and it's yeah, and I think it's you know I think uh, you know yeah this you know the the 25th anniversary was would have been about I think 10 days ago from the last movie yeah I think August 21st if I think something like that yeah. um, and so you know I mean it's you know it's. You know, it's possible. I mean, anything can happen. I mean, they could make the short list, but not get it, not get in on the make the final cut. Um, NWA, another band that's been in the news recently because of that movie, they've been eligible for a couple of years, but you know, they still haven't gotten. It. I mean, I'm sure they will. Yeah, they're gonna get in but, now because uh, of the movie. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, you know, so it's you know, it's a very you know fickle process. I mean, you know, you know, nobody ever gets into any 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 business to win awards or anything. It's nice to. You know, get a pat on the back or something like that, or get a get a back down achievement. I mean, but again, Alice, <laughs> they haven't been very lucky with the uh, <laughs> with the industry industry awards in general. I mean, you'll remember right. that they've been shut out of the Grammys, I think, nine or ten times or so. Um, you know, they've been nominated for something and they just never won it. You right. know, they're getting into you know Susan Lucci territory there. <laughs> so it's uh, you know, I mean, do they deserve it? Yes, I do. I do think so. I you know. Well, obviously, I'm not the most unbiased uh, person to say that, but you know, I think by any objective standard, I think they have had an influence. Um, you know, they were the first ones out of the gate, and as far as the 
Seattle grunge scene. They were, you know, I mean, people forget. I mean, like I, like I told you, I mean, everybody sort of associates the grunge, the rise of grunge with Nevermind. Well, here's, here's the thing. Faces comes out in August of 1990. Man in the Box goes into heavy rotation on MTV in May of 91. By the, that point, I think Jerry said that they'd sold about 40,000 records. By September, they're getting a, a gold record from the RIAA for selling, you know, more than half a million copies. So, I mean, that's like a 10, 11, 12-fold increase from what they had done before. Now, 10 comes out in August of 91. Nevermind comes out in September. Bad Motorfinger comes out in October. So, Alice opened the door, but, uh, you know, it was Nevermind and Pearl Jam, I would think. I would say that blew it wide open. Yeah. And it's incredible that those three albums came out so close together. And then again in 94... Um, the Alice in Chains, or what, what were the ones in '94? Definitely Super yeah. Unknown and Vitalogy. Jar of Flies. Yeah, Jar Super Flies. Unknown and Vitalogy. Verse, I don't know if the Versus album or Versus or Vitalogy, one of those two. Yeah, they're uh, so Versus close Vitalogy, together. Versus Super Unknown. Yep. And you know, Co- and and In Utero came out '93. Little before, uh, yeah. Coven killed himself, and then Unplugged came out '94. Right. I love In Utero so, too. Um, last thing. Uh, it's obviously Mike Inez and Jerry Cantrell and Sean, they deserve to, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to be a band and to play and to release music. It's not their fault that, uh, Lane Staley uh, left them. Um, but for me, I just haven't been able to do it. I, I, I don't know why I have had chances to go see them play here. Um, you know, I have, I've had Spotify and have had, uh, Apple music now. So, I mean, I'm walking around essentially with their albums, uh, with the new singer on my, in my hand almost every day. I can listen to them at any time. And, uh, the, you know, one day, I think it was one of the days that was, uh, the anniversary of, uh, Lane and, and obviously Cobain, it's the same day. So I, I read something about it and, uh, I searched to see if Allison James had ever played don't follow. Uh, live, and I don't think they did with Lane, as far as I could find, anyway. Uh, but they did have I, a video. I'm aware. I mean, yeah, you, you, you did a couple of shows in there, but no, they, they didn't do any full-blown touring after 1993. Right. Um, aside from the four Kiss shows, but even then, that was just a you know, you know, one of the full-blown you know, we're going to tour the planet thing, and then you know, you know, so yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, to my knowledge, they never played it with Lane, but I could. Uh, I could be wrong, but I'm not aware of any time that they played it. Yeah, it's kind of like when Lane sings uh, "No Excuses" at um, that Second mm-hmm. Coming show or whatever, and it's like that's mm-hmm. the first time I ever played it live. But um, mm-hmm. I did the the new Allison Chains has played that song, and I, I did watch that. And I don't know when it finished. I just I just said, you know what? I'm glad for them, but it's just not for me. I just can't do it without Lane. I just can't invest in it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not fair, but. What's your sense of the new band um, and kind of what the perception well, well, you is know, as you research the well, well, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I feel where you're going with this. Um, well, I mean, you know, if you go online, I mean, you'll see these, you know, you'll, you'll see and there's, you know, these heated debates among Alice fans, you know, Lane or William or, you know, William will never live up to Lane or, you know, whatever. I mean... As you as you mentioned, Alice in Chains was was Sean, Mike, and Jerry's band as well. Yep. Um, you know, so it's, it's it's their you know their right to continue to continue as Alice in Chains or not. Um, 
I do think. Um, you know, the, the, you know, historically, there, there were two precedents for bands that carried on after death of their lead singer, uh, Joy Division and ACDC. Obviously, uh, Joy Division changed the, they changed their name and they became New Order and they went on to have their own influential career after that as well. But I think the name change in that case made more sense because the sound changed. It became more electronic drumming, synthesizers, etc. Um, whereas Alice, I mean, I think Jerry himself has even made the comparison. I mean, you know, Bon Scott and ACD and Brian Johnson are, you know, completely different guys, but the sound is still ACD. And so I think that's the analogy that Jerry has used, and I think he's correct in that sense. Um, you know, um, as far as, you know, and as far as William himself goes, I thought that was, I, I thought he was an inspired choice, not a derivative one. You know, he, he doesn't, he, he came up in his own little scene in the Atlanta punk and hardcore thing. He had his own band and his own track record long before uh, he ever met Jerry. So, um, I mean, he, he doesn't try to be lame. He's, he's fine and he's comfortable being himself. Um, if you want to look up, there's, there's one bootleg. I think they've only, I think they've only done it once. It's actually pretty good. Um, they did a, they, there was a show where they did right turn and, uh, and, uh, William does Cornell's part and he nails it perfectly. So you should, you should look at, we should look at after his video of that. Um, so I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think it's, it, I don't think they've cheapened their legacy by choosing to continue with, with William. Um, you know, they haven't become a cover band version of themselves. I mean, they're still, you know, they're still writing. You know, they're still, they still sound like Allison Chains. I mean, I think he's Sean Kenny, you know, he said, you know, they changed our lane to Leathersnake, but, you know, you know, when you go out on tour, you know, kids aren't going to say, hey, Leathersnake kicks ass, they're playing at the club down the street. They're going to be like, oh, it's the Allison Chains guy. Let's go right. see them. Mm-hmm. You know, for better or for worse, they're always going to be Allison Chains. I yeah. mean, you know, so it's, you know, they might, you might as well just, they might as well just embrace it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the legacy and the music and all the stuff that they accomplished, you know, it's not something they should be ashamed of. Um, and, you know, they, they should own it and be proud of it and celebrate it. Yeah, I think all that is fair. And um, I want to kind of get over it myself, you know, but I, every time I think about it, it's like if I went to a show and, you know, they get to the point where they start playing wood and, you know, Jerry is singing that be- that intro. I'm going to start thinking about how, oh, this is the part that, you know, Lane encouraged him to sing. And then I'm going to look over and I'm going to want it to be Lane to be singing it. And it's going to be hard for me, but that's silly probably. Um, I mean, I didn't know these guys. It's just, you know, I don't know. It's silly. Yeah, yeah, but I'm sure they all, they all would have loved, they'd, they'd all love it if Lane was still around. I mean, right. you know, somebody asked me in another interview, you know, what do you think would have happened if, uh, you know, drugs hadn't been such an issue, you know, or, or if Lane had... I've been able to kick, you know, it was kind of an interesting, you know, what if or what might have been here, but, uh, you know, and I'll take a stab at it here, but I think it, you know, assuming that, you know, Wayne had been able to, to get healthy, stay sober, kick it and kick his drug addiction. I mean, I think, you know, but basically I think, I, you know, Alice, you know, he would still, they would still keep, they would still be go recording and touring together. Um, you know, they stopped touring after, <coughs> Excuse me. They stopped touring after '93, basically, and and didn't really tour again. Uh, didn't perform live from '96 to 2006. That's that's a decade, you know, where you're basically out of you know in, in activity. I mean, that's a long time for anybody in any right. field to to be inactive. 
Um, you know, in, in, in many ways, they had, they had to start over again, but with the benefits and the burdens of having, a, you know, a legacy and a brand to, to you know, to live up to. So, uh, but as far as, you know, what, what might have happened if Lane had existed, um, you know, I think, you know, they would have kept recording and touring. They, uh, there might have been a second match season, that one, back in 96 or 97, maybe more, who knows. Um, you know, Al, Jerry probably wouldn't have felt the need to do a solo album or do a solo career because Alice was on hiatus. So, you know, Bobby Depot and Degradation Trip may well have, have turned out as Alice and James albums. Right. Um, and you know so, what I think is great you know, proof who for knows? that? I think it's great proof for that is that rock line where Lane calls in because the guy asks like you know what you know you guys gonna do anything or whatever and Lane's just like right away is like oh yeah anytime mm-hmm. you know and I th- I think he really did believe that like oh I'll I'll do this anytime yeah. you know and I, I, I mean he was he was creating I think right up until the end I mean it was his art project he was supposed to record vocals for that song for Taproot. You know, remember that Toby yeah, Wright? Yeah, yeah, right at uh, the very end. Studio time yep. for him. Um, you know, so, I mean, he, I mean, I think, you know, whatever his health issues might have been, I mean, he still, he was still an artist and musically or, you know, you know, painting or drawing or whatever, uh, whatever he was doing. So, I mean, he, he did, he definitely had that creative urge, that creative spirit, you know, I, I don't think that ever went away for him. Um, I do think he got, uh, disillusioned with, uh, you know, some elements of the fame and, and the business side of things. Um, but, uh, but I think he never, he, 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 I think he was all, my impression is he was always, you know, wanted to create something. He always wanted to create. And I think, you know, he would have kept doing, and, he, and if he's still with us, I think he would still be, keep doing that. Um, so, I don't know, but it's, it, you know, it's an interesting what this question ultimately we'll never find out. The book is called Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. It's uh, by David DeSola. You can find it uh, if you go to com. There's a blog and a bunch of information about the book. And, of course, you can go to Amazon and buy it, uh, bookstores. Uh, I believe – is it available in ebook as well? It is, yes, because you, you talked about yeah, it on Twitter. Yeah, about uh, yeah you get it on the Apple, um, the Apple, the iBook store or, or Kindle, Kindle right. uh, whatever. And then I think Nook as well, which is a Barnes & Noble right. uh, so you can, ebook reader. Yeah. You can do that. There's all this stuff that we talked about today, and there's so many more great stories we didn't get to. Um, uh, a really great story about the song Fear the Voices, which I apparently liked a lot more than they did. Um, uh, all kinds of great stuff we didn't get to besides uh, what we did. Um, and, uh, while, even while I was putting Mike McCready over, I didn't even mention how I, I, I want to ask you, can you think of anyone else who's been in a band with Lane Staley, Chris Cornell, and Eddie Vedder? Or is that pretty much a, a sole, uh, title for, for mm-hmm. Mike McCready? I can't think of anyone else. Staley, Cornell, Staley, Cornell, and Vedder. Yeah. Um, well, Matt Cameron would be two out of, two out of the three. Right. Matt three Cameron doesn't have Lane. No. Yeah. I don't yep. know. Good for yeah, him. That's, 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 a, that's a good bit of trivia there. Yeah. Anything else you want to uh, to mention about the book or where to find it or where to no, find it? No, no, that's it. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Sorry it went so long. I just really, I just love this book. I had so much passion for it. I wanted to tell the story. Thank you for writing it. You did a great job. Um, and uh, hopefully it does well. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, no worries. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Have a good day. Bye.
I want to thank our guest, David Shoemaker and David DeSola for being on the podcast. I really did love that Alice in Chains book and kind of get fascinated by it. Yeah, you told me that often, not while we weren't recording. Yeah, so that was two really good ones in a row uh, with the Molly Knight book and, uh, and that Alice in Chains book. If you want to hear our interview with Molly Knight or our guest last week, uh, another uh, book that I'm going to get to next, Hell to the Redskins. Uh, and our interview with Aaron uh, Aaron Schatz, Schatz. Uh, you can find that on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. Uh, and Don is at Don Lake Sports. So let's do one last thing and get out of here. i got to go to dinner. Sounds good. Uh, my last thing this week, Fear the Walking Dead debuted, I think, about two weeks ago now. And I see it's getting kind of mixed reviews. I think people don't like it because it's not – the same as what they're used to um and i get the impression that the people that are criticizing it is a slow burn a little bit it's not this is all like the beginning of the zombie outbreak and people don't even know that what's happening yet and i get the impression that people that don't like it are kind of the same people that would like criticize the sopranos episode because nobody died in it type thing um i look forward to it my favorite season of the walking dead how many episodes have they had just two so far just two yeah my favorite episode of the of the original series or my favorite season was the first season. And I really liked that. And this wasn't in the comic book. So this was the show writers that kind of wrote this whole arc about them trying to get to the CDC and because that's where they would be working on finding a cure or discovering what happened and all that. And I, I liked the idea of the show being about discovery and uh, exploration. And the show is following more the comic book route in that it's about how scummy people are in bad situations and how everyone turns evil when things get really rough. And I, I still love the original show, but I, I really like that first season. I think that's kind of lost. It's more like they've given up on trying to fix the problem and they're just learning to live with it. And that's how the comic book goes too. Uh, I'm hoping since this is a totally original property based on the comic books and the other show that they're going to show a little bit more of that. Like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Um, and I kind of hope that the timelines catch up and so like the world will be happening at the same time. Cause right now it's way behind, but, uh, I dig it so far. I like it's, it's very tense for something that's been very slow and it, I, I enjoy it. Someone asked Howard about it cause Howard's a big walking dead fan. Okay. He had a really dumb answer. I thought, okay. Where he was like, I don't know if I'm going to watch it. Uh, I love breaking bad, but I didn't watch better call Saul. Really? And he didn't have any reason other than he just didn't watch it. This follows the same idea. I mean, it's different parts of the country. This is in L.A. and the original is in Atlanta. But like Break or Better Call Saul, this is somewhat of a prequel. Because in the original show, the guy wakes up in a hospital after being in a coma and the world has gone to shit. In this one, the world is starting to go to shit. So it, it, it's a bit of a prequel to the, to the other show. I've been hearing great things about a show on Netflix called Narcos. I haven't heard about it. You know, it sounds like it's the next Netflix hit. I've heard Mr. Robot on USA. Uh, our, our buddy Rob is a big fan of that, and he says that uh, he's heard that it's going to do for, I think it's USA, what uh, like Breaking Bad did for AMC. Yeah, this Narcos show, I guess, is about, it's about Pablo Escobar, but he's not the focus. Okay. The focus is about the cops in the United States that tried to stop Escobar, I think. Oh, okay. 
There are subtitles, I guess. Which means I'd have to watch with my glasses on. <laughs> but I'm definitely going to give it a chance. All right, one last thing for me, and I teased this last week. So there's a thing going uh, around the internet. Oh, yeah. That says that Daniel LaRusso is actually the bad guy in The Karate Kid. And uh, I don't know how much of this I'll play, but I have to play some, right? Because instead of trying to explain his problem, somebody's let, let him do it. Okay. I have the video loaded, but I didn't check to see if there's an ad in front of it. So hopefully there's not. But if there is, we'll just have to bear through that. But uh, there is not. Okay, so we need to volume. A sociopath who moves to a California town and begins tormenting a... All right, I didn't have the volume up, though, so let's start that again. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's listen to what this guy has to say, and I'll cut in intermediately. The Karate Kid is the story of Daniel, a violent sociopath who moves to a California town and begins tormenting a local boy and his friends. Johnny is a high school senior with a commitment to atone for past mistakes and move his life forward in a positive direction. Ridiculous. So, ex-degenerate man, 8 a.m. tomorrow, I'm a senior, I've got one year to make it all work. And that's what I'm going to do. Make it work. That quote's they are destined taken totally to meet when Daniel's context. neighbor invites him to a beach party where he becomes instantly obsessed with Johnny's newly ex-girlfriend, Allie. Who wouldn't be? After a courtship ritual consisting solely of creepy, unbroken eye contact, he approaches her only to be summarily rebuffed. Johnny arrives Bye. to patch things up with Allie, but the discussion becomes heated. Well, I want to talk to you, all right? Now, I want to be clear about this. What Johnny is doing is not okay. And he should respect her wish to be oh, left you alone. Think? Johnny is, in the end, a flawed hero. But one hero? thing he is definitely not doing is getting violent. Daniel, however, seeing an opportunity to insert himself into Allie's life, chooses to escalate the situation, demanding the return of Allie's radio. Frustrated and heartbroken, Johnny complies with Daniel's request, and in the heat of the moment, pushes him down. Ridiculous. Daniel now has the radio, and Allie is still in no danger. Nevertheless, he attacks Johnny, who merely steps aside, allowing Daniel to knock himself to the ground Not twice. sure he trips him. He doesn't step aside, he sticks his leg out in an aggressive motion. Daniel refuses to let it go, Johnny must use force to end this violent outburst. Does for the not safety need of to everyone present. No one is in So danger. what is Daniel's response to Johnny's non-aggression? Pow! A sucker punch right to the mouth. Johnny defends himself, as is his legal right, oh, and then de-escalates <laughs> the situation by leaving the scene entirely. He leaves the, the next scene because he's got the kid Daniel bloodied. Daniel while playing sport ball. Rather than accepting that occasional Not bumps and tripped. bruises will happen Again, during playtime, Daniel instead tripped. externalizes the blame onto Johnny's friend Bobby and proceeds to ground and pound him. Bobby MMA was being style. an asshole. A few days later, Daniel attempts to enroll at a karate school, obviously intending to up his game so he can get revenge on Johnny. Put Not it this way. true. How would you Daniel feel if someone picked a fight with you, lost, and then went out the next day and bought a gun. Well, that's exactly how Johnny feels when Daniel shows up at Cobra Kai. Give so he break. decides to send a message. Your violence will not be tolerated. That message is, Johnny by the way, running him off a when cliff you teach on his bike. A with a bad attitude. <laughs> that's the message he sends. Months go by, and no one bothers anyone. Clearly, this conflict is over. No. Until Daniel, unprovoked and for absolutely no reason, drenches Johnny with water in the middle of a school function, ruining his night. To add irony to injury, Johnny was at that very moment sparking up a J, which is just about the least violent thing you can do. I want to stop this for a second just to say that this hero that this guy is is attaching himself to, one of his main points for what a great hero is, is that he's rolling a joint at a high school event. <laughs> All right, let's, let's go on. We're, almost, we're more than almost halfway down here, so let's All just right. keep going through. 
but Hopefully I digress. Can hear my Daniel comments. has crossed the line this time, and he knows it. After causing a multi-car collision, he flees into the night. That's there is true. no telling what further damage this unbalanced and violent individual will do. Not true. And once again, it falls on Johnny to contain Daniel's fury. Beating him After local busybody, karate master, and child batterer Mr. Miyagi intervenes, Daniel convinces him that this is somehow all Johnny's fault. It so is. they go to Johnny's sacred place, the Cobra Kai studio, and challenge him to yet another fight. Johnny accepts the challenge and even agrees to refrain from defending himself against any more of Daniel's unprovoked... All right, let me stop that for a second. He doesn't challenge him to another fight. He asks him to stop beating him up, that they, if they're going to fight again, it should be under referee and right, proper right. rules at a tournament. He's not just blanketly walking in there and, and challenging him to a fight. Ridiculous. Match. No one touches the tournament down until the tournament. Daniel, of course, sees this as a license to continue to harass Johnny in public with impunity. Wait, you hear what he thinks harassment is. This is hey, harassment. Hey, guys, how you doing? It's good to see you. Hey, sorry about the eye there, Johnny. Shoulder okay, Tommy? You guys be careful not to go stepping in front of any more buses now, all right? The day of the tournament arrives. Johnny is there. I do want to mention that then he cuts away from them then insulting Daniel uh, as they walk away. Right. He cuts that part. It's just Daniel who's doing it, not these guys. Ridiculous. All right, now we're going to the tournament. Last minute here. His title. Daniel, meanwhile, is a danger to himself and others as he doesn't even know the basic rules of engagement. All right, what are the rules here? Oh, no. To no one's surprise, Johnny advances to the final round, and Karma catches up with Daniel when his leg is injured by the boy he wantonly attacked on the soccer field. Intentionally. However, just as Johnny is about to be awarded his trophy, Daniel is granted unnatural strength by the demon sorcerer Miyagi, enabling him to defeat Johnny and win the tournament in an upset. Why that's bad, Ever I don't know. Of good sportsmanship, <laughs> Johnny lets go of his sadness at losing, subjugates his ego, and personally presents Daniel with his tainted blood trophy. May you choke on it in your wet dreams, you rotten little prick. Thanks for watching. Please click. Wow. Yeah. His tainted blood trophy? Okay, buddy. Uh, I don't know. Let's see if I can find out who this guy is because there is a. Uh... Is that his thing? Does he, is, does he go into movies and make the bad guys good guys? Yeah, I guess so. Here, we'll, we'll find out who he is. And hit subscribe if you'd like to see more videos like this. Let me know in the comments what you think about my theory I think and you're what an movie asshole. I should talk about next. <laughs> Who cares? And check out my previous video, Mortal Kombat and Enter the Dragon are the same movie. This is a karate dojo, not a knitting class. I don't even know what to say, to be honest. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. Uh, there's a write-up about it on Men's Journal. Um, it says here, maybe you disagree, and I do. But they even go on to say maybe you root for an instigator isn't strong enough or smart, smart enough to fight his own battles. Maybe you don't see Johnny as the tragic hero. Like, what is this? Where? What is this movement? Like, where, <laughs> where did this come from? Is there anything sacred in the world? Like, who was sitting around at home thinking, you know, there was a, a cinematic masterpiece made 31 years ago in Hollywood. Uh, it's been an unbelievable narrative for underdogs and bullied boys, a chance for them to watch a film, to be inspired, to lift themselves up above bullying, to work towards goals. Uh, it's an unbelievable piece. And someone was, someone, this is what's wrong with the internet. Someone somewhere was thinking, I need to tear that down. <laughs> I need to twist the facts of this movie and tear it down to the ground and make people believe that somehow Daniel 
the hero of 31 years is not a hero. And let's look at what they went on to do after this. Didn't they drop him off a cliff? Yeah, that's the that's the point where they say they, they they need to tell Daniel that this kind of behavior won't be tolerated. No, no, no. I mean in the one where they're uh, is it the third one where they're bonsai tree farmers? Don't they like uh, cut his rope or something? Well, like that? yeah. I mean, but that's it, a different guy. Right? It's all kinds of just tragic misbehavior towards Daniel as the films go on. But I mean, we can only do it one film at a time here because there's just so much material. People have been so rude to Daniel over the years, but. The kid's a hero. He's a really strong hero, and he's a great kid, and it's a great movie for boys. And if you're going to try to go into this convoluted nonsense where kids are supposed to watch this movie and walk out thinking that Johnny was cheated in the tournament or something because Mr. Miyagi has, quote-unquote, sorcerer power, <laughs> which is ridiculous. There's no proof of any kind of sorcery. He rubbed his hands together to create friction and warmth and adjusted the sprain in Daniel's knee. It's not sorcery. It's medicine. (laughs) This whole thing is absurd. It's ridiculous. And I'm not going to hear another word of it. And the mouth 